The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Hello, Billy. Hello, Joe. Always good to see you, my friend. I'm just here so you can give COVID back to Florida. <laughs> I wonder if it works like that. Florida gave it to me. I've got something for it. I'll, f- I'll have to figure out how to pay Florida back. Don't say Florida never gave you anything. Listen, man, I had a good time down there. It was a rough few days, but I had a good time. <laughs> I feel like everybody has the same Florida story, and it's just that. Well, Florida is just Florida. You know, I mean, one of the things that Florida has gotten a lot of uh, positive uh, reviews since the pandemic. You know, Florida's Florida came up during the pandemic, right? I mean, a lot of people were negative on it. They thought that the restrictions were terrible and, you know, he needs to do more and DeSantis is killing people. But a lot of people are like, you know what? At least I can go to restaurants. Florida lets you go out. Florida doesn't want to have you have mandates and the tax situation. Florida came up. You got to admit, Florida, Florida became a more attractive place during the pandemic. August was the deadliest month in Florida in the history of the the pandemic. the pandemic this past yeah. august yeah one in yeah. five covid deaths in the united states occurred in florida now it's almost as many as one in four covid deaths in the united states are occurring in florida we've had 13 miami-dade county public schools employees die of covid that includes teachers bus drivers people die of covid since mid-august jesus last month we had i think no less than 20 police officers in the state of florida die we had a 10-day period in which n- we had a police officer a day dying of COVID. If you go to the Officer Down Memorial page, uh, they, the executive director there, a sergeant from Fairfax, Virginia, says that we, uh, I, by the end of the pandemic, the, uh, it will overtake the terror attacks of September 11th, 2001, as the single deadliest incident in the history of United States law enforcement. I mean, if I told you that there's a killer out there in Florida killing a cop a day, there'd be fucking martial law. There'd be tanks in the streets. There'd be guys in tactical gear and, and, and assault rifles, rightfully so. And there is, and it's, it's, it's COVID-19. And these people are interacting with the public, of course, to boot. And it's a, it's a tragedy. It's a human tragedy. What is the difference between the way Florida is treating it and the way other states are treating it? So Florida <laughs> is having these, in, like if so many cops in particular, dying yeah. in Florida. Is that the case everywhere? Is that the case with all first responders, that they're all at risk? Or is it just, is Florida uniquely dangerous? <laughs> the short answer is yes. Uh, <laughs> and by the way, what the fuck is happening in Florida is an evergreen question. Right. But um, that is the question. Yeah. But the answer, you know, the COVID-19 for the last two years is the single largest cause of death for law enforcement officers, more so than all other causes combined. That's crazy when you think about combined. the amount of violence yeah. and the amount of crime that takes place. Yeah. COVID-19, number one cop killer for two years. Uh, running and 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 counting and this so that's is true just, everywhere. just in everywhere no, no, that's, just in Florida that's true nationally but Florida is uniquely because we're open for business that kind mm. of pro business pro freedom uh, attitude you know listen Florida has no indigenous industry okay we don't we don't produce anything but oranges and machine guns that's what Florida makes we sell the sunshine do you guys make machine guns yeah we have, we have gun manufacturers in Florida oh, it's like a- we sell the sunshine okay and that just means we have to what we sell we're, we're all just 
tourism people, right? We, 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 we knock down the old shit, we build new shit, we build it taller, we build it bigger so we can attract a thousand newcomers tomorrow. It's a Ponzi scheme. The economy is a Ponzi scheme. It relies, it's not self-sufficient. It relies solely on new outside money and investors coming in the next day. So we subsist from hustle to hustle. So our pandemic hustle was come here. Everybody else is on lockdown, come to Florida. And Mm. a lot of people did. And a lot of people died as a consequence of that. So some businesses did, did better and people died. I mean, that's the reality. Looking at something today that was showing the deaths in Florida per capita versus the deaths in California per capita, per capita, when it was age adjusted and Florida had less deaths when it was age adjusted, when, when they when they looked at it in comparative to like how old people die normally anyway. And Florida has a much older population. We do. It was showing that per capita, more people are dying in a very locked down state like California. Well, I think that I don't know that that's entirely age adjusted. It may be. Yeah, it's accurate, age adjusted. But, but I, I there's a 27 year old police officer, a mother of a. Two-year-old, five-month-old. I she mean, died from COVID. Died from COVID. So, like, and these are, are they getting bad treatment? I think they're. <laughs> I think it's several things. Listen, treatment is no substitute for the vaccine. It's just not okay. People, the the, uh, the vaccine is helping people. It is helping people to. It's less likely they'll get infected. It's more likely they will survive. Th- that just bears out. I think it's the vaccine. Hesitation is what I think it is. I think that that's the major cause. And it's particularly problematic when you have public facing people like law enforcement officers who are interacting. Yeah. They could come to your window to write a, a part, uh, write a traffic ticket, and that could be but a death is, sentence. It's very unusual for a 27 year old person with good health care, someone who's been yeah. taken care of, to die from COVID. Yes. It's very, very statistically yes. unusual. And that is anecdotal. That's one example. So I'm not yes. saying that that. Is, is what, the rule did she have pre-existing Florida. medical conditions and comorbidities? I have no idea, but let's be let's be honest. Americans, by and large, are not in as good a shape as you're, as you're in. <laughs> like that's just you know we, we all we're all we're walking talking comorbidities. That's that's just you know yeah. the reality. But you know the 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 truth is is that there is a safe and effective and in fact free way to because that's the thing too is is the treatment is not a a pre-infection prophylaxis you know it's something you it's something you do later you know it's not something you do to avoid getting the uh getting the virus and here's the thing once you have the virus for some people that's a death sentence it doesn't matter how you treat it Um, wait but wait a minute stop i don't know if that's true i don't know if that's true because we don't know what they're doing when you say it doesn't matter how you treat them if they treat them with monoclonal antibodies in particular early on in their infection which are available in florida yeah, they're available yeah. everywhere. Yeah. It's shown to have an incredible rate. There's like there's a recent study. Fauci actually talked about it. The 85 percent keeps people from being hospitalized. Absolutely, and every and I don't begrudge anyone a cocktail or a kitchen sink approach. Once you get infected, you should try everything that you and your doctor right want to do. You, you were saying do. for some people, if they get infected, yes. there's nothing they can do. And I'm saying I don't know if that's the case. I, I don't know if they're doing that. I think some people don't know what to do. And they're basically sent home and told to take Tylenol. If they have poor health care, they're getting bad advice and they're getting bad health care once they're infected. I think there's a lot of people who don't have access to quality health care. There's a lot of people who don't have access to health care, period. And there's a lot if of people. If you're a cop, yes. I mean, that, is, that should be paramount. Yes. I mean, if you are interacting 
with the general public the way police officers are yes. during a pandemic. They should have access to the best healthcare possible, especially if they're infected. I mean, if you're going to ask these people to protect you, you should absolutely protect them. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, so that's, it's, that's why I said it's a human tragedy, yeah. what, you know, what's happening. Uh, but I, th- I think that it starts with, listen, I'm a, I'm a documentarian, so I'm a natural-born skeptic, but I'm also pro-fact. Because what we do is co- cultural anthropologists, which is effectively what documentarians are, is we apply the scientific method, right? We make observations, we ask questions, we develop hypotheses, we collect data, you know, we experiment, we analyze that data, and we draw conclusions with the best information we have at the time. I don't know how all of these police officers were, were treated. I know they died. And I know that many of them were not, were not, in fact, statistically, most of them were not vaccinated. I don't have access to their, you know, to their private health information. I just know that the, the treatment is not a replacement for your ability to prophylactically prevent either being infected well, whether or whether it's a being replacement or not. We know for sure that being vaccinated can protect you. And it can protect you from hospitalization. Yeah. It can protect you from, you know, the, the, the odds of you dying once vaccinated are much lower. We know all that. That's a yeah. fact. But we also know there are a lot of treatments available that are not being utilized for people once they get infected. Whether for whatever reason they have their vaccine hesitation, for whatever reason they, they don't want to do it, there's a lot of treatment that's available that's not discussed. And I think... Monoclonal antibodies are among the best. I just That's, did it. I just yeah. got through it. Um, when I got through it that quickly, I was like, oh, well, this can clearly be done. I mean, I'm not, I'm 54, you know, I'm not a spring chicken. And when I beat it that quick, I was like, okay, well, this is, I'm not that unusual. I mean, I work out a lot, I eat really well, and I'm healthy. That helps tremendously, obviously, to have a resilient body. But also, there's treatments available that aren't being utilized or people aren't aware of or they're not getting access to. Some of those things treat symptoms and some of those things are effective against the virus. That's yes. the other that's the other thing as well. So the uh, the monoclonal antibodies have emergency use authorization by the FDA. I think that's because they are probably the most effective uh, thing that's available right now. Um, and again, I'm a natural born skeptic. So I'm I look at everything sideways. I, I've been testing negative for what a year and a half and I have to think I you know in Florida that I came into contact with it or I was sick and didn't know what I was asymptomatic mm. I just you know so I'm, I'm skeptical of these although in Florida we literally have tents at the side of the road COVID COVID testing so really? maybe not necessarily the most reliable how, how, how many places <laughs> this is so, so interesting to me there's so many places for testing but so few places for treatment you know, wouldn't you think that they would set up places that could provide monoclonal antibodies? We and do they made them publicly available, like really obvious. We have them. Do you make them real, real obvious? The governor has been on a promotional tour because one of his biggest donors, of course, is Regeneron. the guy who, yeah, is yeah, the guy who runs the they company do that and in, so, Cal- yeah. in Texas as well. Yeah. It's, and it's great. And I just, I just wish more people were aware of it. I wish more people, listen, right now it is a pandemic. I believe of the unvaccinated, which means that it's a pandemic of the uninformed and misinformed. And I think that, uh, again, I I think that people have don't necess- also don't necessarily have access to the same information that you and I have. For example, you and I know that Invermectin is there are doses for humans. That's not it's not 
just a horse paste. You right, know, but like that's you willful know. misinformation that they're distributing. They're doing that for some strange reason. And I don't know exactly why. But I, I don't know that it is. I think what, what happens is is that people don't necessarily know that. So they're going down to their local racetrack or feed uh, okay, store. So listen, and, CNN you know, knows that. You, they yes. know that the man who created it won the Nobel Prize for its use in humans in 2015. They know that it's used for yellow fever and dengue fever and has antiviral properties. They know that. They know that it's used for river blindness. They know that it's been used for over 40 years. They yes. know that. So when they say horse paste and a horse dewormer, they're not saying it because they want people to not take horse dewormer. They're saying it to ridicule this particular medication. I think they have an obligation to inform people that aren't informed that are that are literally going down to feed stores. Which, by but the way, that's not is what anecdotal. they're doing. Yeah. That's not what I, they're doing. I, I don't. They're talking about people who are taking the human drug and they're pretending they're taking horse dewormer. Here's the thing: it is not approved, and even the even the big pharma company Merck made forty six billion dollars last year, who manufactures and you know uh, uh, ivermectin. Even they say this is not a proven treatment for right. either to avoid the virus or to to treat the virus whereas uh, uh, a mono, monoclonal antibodies regeneron mm -hmm. has emergency use authorization but the reality is first and foremost well, you and I are not doctors so if we're gonna get real specific yeah. about this and we start pulling up links this is gonna be a long conversation <laughs> about COVID and yes. ivermectin and I'm uniquely and unqualified I, yeah. to opine I, on, on I know a little bit about it because of my experiences with it and discussing with doctors, but it's not as cut and dry as anybody wants to pretend it is. And one of the reasons why Merck is talking about it is they're developing their own antiviral medication, and it's a generic now, which means anybody can make it. So ivermectin can be literally be made by any pharmaceutical company. There's a lot of complicated shit behind the scenes, and as a skeptic, maybe you should look at it from that perspective as well. Because the what was it the Japanese the Tokyo what was that the Tokyo medical yeah. organization that is traditionally very conservative just adopted ivermectin use last week and just talked about the efficacy of it. There's studies of it that have come out of India. There's studies of it that have come out of other places. There's the the frontline critical COVID care workers who have been administering it before there was a vaccine and had very positive effects using it. It's very yeah. complicated, and I don't think we should just dismiss, dismiss their work, particularly when we don't know that much about it. The last thing I am is, is, is dismissive. I think, it's, though it's important to deal in facts, it's important to say that, that there's a lot that we don't know. I think that is, we've learned that a lot over there's the last two years. There's a lot that we don't know, and there's the a lot of bullshit years. going around. Yeah, and, but I think that it's, uh, we do know that there is a safe, effective, free FDA approved vaccine. We do know that. We know uh, that in the event that you get the virus, which m may be a breakthrough case, it might happen even if you have the vaccine, that there are monoclonal antibodies. There are good treatments that are also FDA emergency use uh, authorized that, that you can you can get. I think that, you know, we know that two of the biggest studies on ivermectin have been withdrawn for all sorts of, you know, reasons and potential, I don't know if that's potential true. fuckery. There's a that, lot of studies on ivermectin. If you go to the Critical Care COVID Workers website, they detail, there's a long list of studies that they've shown ivermectin to be effective in preventing death and preventing hospitalization. And see, I, this is a thing where, like, you and I are arguing about some shit we don't really have expertise in. I think that that's absolutely true. That's, yeah. why, that's why Netflix publicist didn't want me to talk ah, about it. Too late. But <laughs> you went right into it, motherfucker. Look at you. Did I go right in? No, you, you asked about Florida. You went right into I didn't it. Go right into, oh, I'm, oh, yeah. I asked yeah. you about Florida, and you went right into COVID deaths. 
Did, is that what happened? Yeah, you went into police officers and more people dying of COVID. Well, and you asked me about the, the I, state's response to the pandemic. I was just going to talk to you about the preposterous nature of your state that you love so much. <laughs> You're a defender of Florida in its most ridiculousness. And one of the things that I want to talk to you, because I haven't talked to you since the pandemic started, last time I talked to you was Screwball, right? Like, how long ago was that? Oh, yeah. What, 2019? Yeah, it was 20, right yeah. before the shit hit the fan. That was the last time we talked, yeah. and we were talking about that documentary. And then when all this happened, and so much of the wackiness and the, you know, the, the controversies coming out of Florida, like, you embrace the chaos of Florida. Yeah, Florida fuckery is our genre, and it's our, also yeah. our, our top export. I right. think is as well. It's really what we provide the rest of the but for you, and COVID. And, and COVID. You, yeah. you, I mean, look about how much your work is about Florida. The Cocaine Cowboy series, you know, all the stuff on A Rod, like all the yeah. there's there's so much of your your work. The petrifying thing. I'm a Florida native, you yeah. know, and a lifelong Miamian. And I think the petrifying thing that I've learned through the years, and it's not my theory, uh T D Allman called Miami the city of the future. And effectively the Florida of today is the America of tomorrow. And more importantly, the Miami of today, more specifically. The Miami of today is the America of tomorrow. So if you want to know what uh, challenges we'll face or calamities will befall us as a nation in the years or even decades to come, you need only look at the canary in the coal mine, which is, which is South Florida. Do you think that's because of it's very vulnerable to climate change, first of all, yeah. right? Like there's, there's estimates about how long Miami can last. Yeah. But not like, good. Yeah, they don't grim. They, they think we got about two decades, right? Isn't yeah. that the the current thought? I'm a renter. Let me put it <laughs> you that way. I've lived there my whole life. I don't own really? any property in Miami. It's probably a good move. I'm not bullish. It does. It. it seems like it's going to go underwater, right? Yeah, it'll definitely be underwater. It's just a question of when. Just it's a question. All like there, like the the ground itself is very porous. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, you know, we had uh, uh, reclaimed wetlands. That's Miami Beach. That's where Champlain Towers is. Reclaim wetlands. What does that mean? It was fucking mangroves. Swamps. Yeah, swamp. And yeah. that we reclaimed, which means we filled it in, and there's still porous limestone underneath that. Champlain Towers only had water coming at it from the front, the back, above, and below. But other than that, it was totally dry. This I is mean, the tower that collapsed. Collapsed, yeah. I yeah. mean, just so battered. We're getting battered there. They were on that porous limestone? Yeah. That was, oh, yeah. yeah, built on reclaimed wetlands. And so I'll tell you right now, as we speak, this is the... Um, the King Tides. You know what the King Tides are? No. They happen every September, October, and November. Not the entire time, but there's like a week here, a week in there for those three months. It is what we call sunny day flooding. So it has to do with the tides. It has to do with the, the, the distance between the sun and the moon and the earth. And it floods in the sunlight. It, we can get as much as 12 inches, 12 inches above the highest high tide of the year. So it just, uh, it's not from rain? It's not. Now, here's the problem. We're still in hurricane season, which means rain exacerbates it. Inclement weather can, we're totally fucked when it rains on top of the king tides. But this is just like a day, like you just, if you are in a low-lying area or waterfront or oceanfront, bayfront, that's just what, sunny day. It's perfectly, it could be perfectly beautiful and you could have as much as 12 inches uh, above the highest high tide. So it's just an unusual level of the ocean. Yeah, it's just a quirk of, of the tides. It happens every year, uh, off and on for three months. Yeah. That's in, in the day, we call it sunny day flooding. That's Jeez. a thing that we have there. I mean, you know Miami, we make it rain, but yeah. we, now, we have sunny, <laughs> sunny day flooding is a thing. Uh, and there's nothing they can do like New Orleans, like put up some sort of a 
some sort of a, a wall, dam. a dam. So the, the Army Corps of Engineers proposed a kind of futuristic, post-apocalyptic, you know, after the flood, well, pre-flood kind of a wall. And Miami said, no gracias, no thank you. We don't want that. We'll, 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 we'll fend for ourselves. Did and they say no because it was too expensive or did they say no because... No, the Army Corps of Engineers, I think, was going to be federally funded. They just didn't want this unsightly, unseemly kind of a wall in our beautiful town. And, <laughs> but what they did want is they wanted a signature bridge. We're building like this $800 million bridge that we don't need. That's, but it's, it's, super, it's super pretty, as we say in Miami. Mm. It's super pretty. And somebody probably got a good deal. Oh, yeah. Oh, you you better believe the contractors. That, that's yeah. the thing. That's why the Miami of today is the America of tomorrow. It's really the corruption, dysfunction, and nonstop construction. That's really what it is. It's this anything goes Wild West kind of mentality because you know I, I said this before on the show you know LA is where you go when you want to be somebody New York is where you go when you are somebody and Miami is where you go when you want to be somebody else yeah. it's always been a sunny place for shady people the Florida man phenomenon it's just like you know it just if you have it's not New England it's not what's your name who's your daddy everyone's nouveau riche in Miami so no one cares where your money came from as long as the booze is flowing and everybody's dancing, the music's going, nobody gives a shit. And it's always been that place. It's always been that party place. You were, you were telling me before about how during, uh, was, was it the 70s, or the 80s, these recording artists would go yeah. down to Miami? My, yeah, I, listen, uh, Miami is just, it's America's Casablanca, you know? And so some of the biggest records of all time, um, I mean, back when that was a business, like you could sell tens of millions of albums. Uh, everybody went to Miami. Eric Clapton was one of the first. Jimmy Buffett, the Bee Gees, the Eagles, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, um, the Allman Brothers, Fleetwood Mac, and they were doing all those records that we all still know today from the 70s. They recorded, uh, mixed or mastered, at least in part. Um, uh, 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 Glenn Fry and Don Henley wrote the lyrics to Hotel California in a rented mansion on Miami Beach, <laughs> uh, where it had that had been the love nest um, of Howard Hughes and Ava Gardner. Uh, uh, Winston Churchill used it as a, a winter home, uh, and um, the Watergate burglars and Howard Hunt used it as well. And then um, Stephen Stills used it. He was hanging out there with like Shel Silverstein. They were. It was like a weird scene. And then uh, eventually. The Eagles came down to do Hotel California and wrote the lyrics. They locked themselves, these two guys, in a fucking room. And they, they just, the housekeeper left sandwiches and, and drinks wow. at the door because the door was closed. And they came down in bathrobes one day with, with legal pads, yellow legal pads, and said, we have it. We have, we have, wow. we have the lyrics. And so everybody, everybody and it was a, a communal scene, too. It's kind of like your place with the, you know, everybody just sort of like oh, stops by. Yeah, like, <laughs> people stop by to get, it was, it was like that because you had all these artists in every room. Like, so there was pickup basketball games outside. You'd drive up and there'd be the Bee Gees playing the Allman Brothers, playing Eric Clapton in a pickup basketball game. And they, they to this day, Criteria Studios, they have an, a wooden upright piano. And the rumor has it one day there was an artist, I won't mention the name, was playing and had a baggie of cocaine on the top of the piano and he was playing and the baggie fell open, fell, boom, puff of smoke on the keys of the piano uh, appropriately. And he grabbed the bag and salvaged what he could. And then for the next several months, the people at the studio who worked at it would 
stick a straw between the keys <laughs> on the on the piano and try to mostly dust. They were probably snorting, but like we're just trying to salvage whatever they could from there. So the the the, the joke was that um, they had a, a line item on the. Uh, the bills, because that's the thing, they were away from the watchful eyes and ears of the labels, which were all based in New York and L.A. So they would go to Miami and no one knew what the fuck was going. I didn't have publicists or producers from or executives rather from from the recording studio. So they would send them bills to pay for the studio time. There'd be a line item for cocaine, but you couldn't say cocaine. Um, and I think, by the way, cocaine was at that time was probably part of the appeal of bringing the artist to Miami, to be fair. Probably, uh, right? But it was under the, the category of piano tuning <laughs> was, was the cocaine. So you get uh, like some, you know, someone at, you know, accounts and at a record label would call up and say, hey, I have a question about this, this invoice. Um, it's, it's, there's $5,000 here for piano tuning, but there's only one ballad on the album. So what's with all this fucking piano tuning? You have? There's, there was an act. Oh, God, I'm not going to say it, but there was a band who came down in the 80s to record a criteria. And then they came down again in the 90s. And the guy who runs the studio, Trevor, his mom was the manager before him. So he was a little kid running around this scene. If you can imagine a little kid in Miami in the 70s running around this scene. This is an incredible place. Aretha Franklin did the Respect record at Criteria. James Brown did I Feel Good, recorded that song at Criteria. It's a really historic place. And so... He, this band comes in and he says to the lead singer, he says, hey, listen, I don't know if you remember, you, know, you were down here 15 years ago, whatever, back in the, eight, the late 70s, early 80s doing this, this record. And the singer says, I have no memory of that whatsoever, except for one thing. He said, one night, apparently, we were done recording here and someone took us into the neighborhood. It's like in a residential kind of area, into the neighborhood, to this woman's house. And she brought out a brick of cocaine, an entire kilo of cocaine. He said, I'd never seen that before. She put it down on the coffee table. We're sitting on the couch. She put it down on the, this is a big band. Uh, they put it, she put it down on the coffee table. She cut it open. And all I remember from my entire experience in Miami is the smell of that entire kilo of cocaine. Like just what it feels like when an, enti the, like an entire kilo of cocaine is opened up before you and it hits and it hits you. Have you ever done coke? Never. Me neither. Never. But hearing that, I want to sniff. <laughs> I just want to know. That is the takeaway for that. <laughs> I want to know what that's like. Can you imagine you or I doing cocaine? Oh my god, both of us wouldn't Can shut the fuck up. Imagine two of us together in a room with coke. They'd scrape us off the ceiling with a fucking <laughs> shovel. They'd be like, "Hey, what's that up there? That's fucking that's that's Joe and Bill up there. No shit." It's kind of amazing that you've managed to go through high school, college, yeah. the whole deal, and not oh. and and live this whole time in Miami. But I went I went to an arts high school in the '90s, so cocaine. You know, drug trends tend to be kind of cyclical. You know, mm -hmm. um, they run in the like nostalgia cycles. They yeah. kind of run in 20 year kind of things. Oh, this decade is defined by this. You know, um, so, you know, you had psychedelics in the 60s. Cocaine, uh, uh, cocaine kind of comes in vogue in the 70s. And the obviously there's some overlap, you know, um, beginning of the 70s is like the end of the 60s, etc. So in the 90s, it kind of died away. Totally. And of course, pot's a perennial. Pot yeah. is always hot. But by the 90s, what happens is, yeah, cocaine kind of fell out of favor. Um, also, I went to arts high school. No one could afford cocaine. But the, psych the 60s drugs kind of came around again. People were doing mushrooms, acid, MDMA became, you know, ecstasy became a thing. So that trend kind of came around again. And people weren't really doing cocaine when I was in, in high school. They were mm. doing a lot of other shit.
Uh, no. When when I was in high school, people were doing coke. But in the '90s, after that, I remember someone saying something about coke, and someone was like, "You do coke still?" Like <laughs> in the '90s, people had stopped. But then somewhere in the 2000s, it seemed to kick up again. And it's all it's like people forget. It's like a group of people ruin their entire lives with coke. And then I don't know if you know about this, what's going on right now in L.A. But there was a terrible tragedy amongst. These comedians where four comedians at a party overdosed. Yeah. yeah, and they're they're getting cocaine that's that's laced with fentanyl. And uh, one of them survived, and she's in the ICU now, and she started to talk again and t text people and stuff, so she seems like she's going to make it. But three people died. Legalize it, regulate it. Yes. Yeah, who, who the fuck knows what you're getting? You get, exactly. get a pill or a, pow a bag, a baggie of powder from somebody in a club or whatever. Yeah. I mean, Stanhope wrote about it on his Instagram. Was getting into it with people, but it's 100 percent true because it, it, then you would get actual cocaine and actual cocaine. You'd probably feel like shit in the morning, but you'd survive. <laughs> and you would, it, it would, you would at least know, like you know, if we had this whiskey, you have a shot of whiskey, you know what it is. It's a shot of whiskey. We all know what it means. We know, we know what that dose is. Right. We know what that's going to do to us. And you can overdose on whiskey. Anyone can. We can. You can all go to the store and buy enough alcohol to drink yourself to death on a daily basis. But at least you know what it is. With these these cocaine laced with fentanyl products that people are getting, or heroin laced with fentanyl, you have no idea. You're you're just t rolling the dice that the cartel didn't fuck up in this mix. Forget the cartel. Once it gets to retail, sure. that's where they really step on it. And, yeah, and cut all it kinds up. of people are stepping yeah. on it all over the place. It's crazy. Yeah, it's it's a scary thing, and it's unnecessary. But it's a thing where it's political suicide. I think if someone came along and said, like, if DeSantis said, "Legalize all drugs," people were like, "You're out of your fucking mind. You can't do that." He's still it's, blocking the legalization of medical marijuana, which 70 plus percent of Floridians voted in favor of. So. Yeah, that's a silly thing because silly. people with nausea, people with uh, anything, any kind of wasting disease, any cancer, people that are dealing with chemotherapy, it is a godsend. There's a thing called NAD, and we, we tried to come up with the, how you say it. The other day, but it's it, what it does is it actually lengthens your telomeres. It's something that you take in an intravenous form, and it's uh, super good for your body. It's it's uh, it, it's one of the rare things that you take that you do it in IV form, and like almost immediately afterwards, you feel great. Um, but this stuff is brutal to take, and it usually takes about two hours in a drip because you want to take it very slowly. Because when you take it fast, it just kill. It's it's a, the most unpleasant, uncomfortable feeling in your stomach, unless you're high. When you smoke weed, I turn that thing up full crank, <laughs> and I go through a full bag in ten minutes. And I'm telling you, I barely feel it. And I was when I was doing that, I was like, oh well, this is probably the nausea preventing aspect that chemo patients enjoy and people that you know people with aids people that have a really hard time eating food and the the, the something about marijuana and nausea honestly i i know that it's a medicine you know that it's a medicine i think most people even who participate in the prohibition uh, which has been the incidentally the deadliest thing about marijuana has been the prohibition of course it's yeah. with every drug yeah. you're you're boosting up organized crime and i just so but the point is, I also, when it comes to the legalization, I don't care that it has a medicinal purpose. Right. That whiskey does not have a medicinal. Well, a hot toddy when you have a little cold, maybe. You know, there's no yeah. medicinal purpose. You do it for fun, and I don't give a shit. You know, that's 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 the autonomy. You know, right. that you, that it's of your course. body. It's not affecting other people, right. and you want to you want to enter into some sort of 
you know, deal or contract with a with a certified you know marijuana dealer or or a dispensary or cocaine dealer for that matter. Yeah. What do I care? I feel about the same that? way about everything. I feel the same way about cigarettes, motorcycle racing. Like you do whatever the fuck you want, man. As long as, long as it's not hurting me, right? I am one hundred percent for you making your own choices. Your right to wave your hands and yes. ends where my nose begins. Yes. And bottom line: if you're over yeah. there, yeah. What the fuck do I care? Yeah. You know, one hundred percent. But like, we have this attitude in this country that drugs are bad, right? We all grew up in the eighties that just say no. All that nonsense that got into people's heads while people all around you are doing sanctioned government approved drugs yeah. that are killing people. Drug dealers in lab coats. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But I, you know, I, I, we did a documentary called Limelight about the, um, the disco turn nightclub. Oh, I didn't it, see that one. It was a deconsecrated historic church, a cathedral. In Chelsea, in this New York City, yeah, I remember pre-gentrification. Yeah. yeah, and uh, I was Pe around back then. It was fun. Peter yeah. Gation bought this. This Canadian guy bought this place and turned it into a a nightclub, and it was the club kids scene. Mm -hmm. um, it was it was all that, and of course, it, then the rise of of ecstasy, um, and then what, what in this doc we talk about how MDMA was a useful and effective tool that therapists were using um, to particularly like marriage therapy people open up they got more honest they got right. more, you know they told you know it was like a truth serum you know and like and got in touch with their feelings and and it was a it was a viable not only was it a viable medicine but it was something that that doctors were availing themselves of in treatment and then the DEA suddenly and unilaterally classifies it as a as a as a controlled substance, and all of a sudden it went from potentially a viable. So this wasn't an act of Congress. This was a a an unelected bureaucratic organization who said, "Well, you know, the war on drugs is kind of winding down. We need a new line item, right? We need a new budget. We need, oh. we need hundreds of millions of dollars to fight the scourge of of this new party drug, the kids and the discos. It's killing the kids. The you know the and so they they just suddenly created a new villain overnight, which costs us." Billions and ultimately trillions of dollars to fight, which was a, a very real drug. And when doctors are controlling it, administering it at a medical level, it's one thing. You got a bunch of guys making pills in their condos, you right, know, <laughs> like with the, the synthetic drugs. And the, who knows what the fuck is, yeah. is in that? You're paying somebody $20 for a pill on a dance floor. Well, at least MAPS has started to use MDMA therapy to help people with PTSD and traumatic brain injuries and... This is something that's going on right now, and there's federally approved studies. So <clears throat> because of the good work that MAPS has done in showing that um, a lot of these people with these traumatic experiences, uh, people that have been assaulted, abused, sexual assault, they, they can have a, an amazing relief from MDMA therapy. And so because of that, we have a real good chance of reintroducing MDMA because of MAPS as a, a therapeutic use um, medicine, really, yeah. which is really what it is. I mean, obviously, it's a party drug. Obviously, it's great. It makes people feel good. But there's some amazing therapeutic uses for it, particularly for soldiers and, again, people with traumatic experiences. Litany of drugs yeah. that you can abuse. But right. legalize it, regulate it, tax it. I yes. mean, it's the only it's, – it, yes. it's what's – it's what's been so frustrating about the the medical marijuana, a uh, uh, fucking uh, 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 just like uh, 
trek. It's just like it's this never ending saga in Florida. Is that like I remember when I went? So I didn't smoke pot until I was what I tried. I was like thirty seven years old. How old are you now? Old. I'm forty three. Oh. So I tried pot. So very, when I met you, you had just started. I just well, I, I don't smoke it. Right, I tried it. When do you smoke it? Like how often? Never. Never. I just I was in I was in Colorado, and that's like. You know, it's like going to Italy and not eating pasta. So you rarely smoke pot, is what you're saying? Yeah, I never, I almost never smoke pot. And you do smoke pot sometimes. I do take, uh, like, a gummy sometimes. I don't smoke it, yeah. Like a 10 milligram, like a little one? I'm a lightweight, yeah. Listen, 10 milligrams is nice. It's a nice feeling. (laughs) I I didn't, I don't know, I didn't care for it. I, I said to my, I remember I was in this pot smoking, I was in this pot church, in, Den- in Denver. That's always a bad place to be. Yeah. You don't want to be in public, do you? Yeah. It's Any- like, well, anytime it's someone social. sets up a pot church, you're like, yeah. who am I associating with? Well, <laughs> I knew the guy. He was okay, people. You know? so, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't yeah, be. <laughs> He might have. He might have. But we're, we're and like I don't know. I'm I'm like I'm high and I'm sitting in these pews, right? You know, and it's dark and people are and I'm just like, I'm like I don't like this. I said I said to my girlfriend. I said I wish I was drunk. I wish I was drunk. And then, and she's like, and we didn't, what I said, oh, she never let me forget this. I said, I said, this will never catch on. <laughs> <That's> what, <laughs> she'll never, she'll never, I didn't remember saying that, but she said, that's what I said. This will never catch on. And then we went to Chick-fil-A. Ooh, game changer. Because hate tastes great. And I, we went to- Hate tastes so great. We went, we went to Chick-fil-A and I got to tell you, I'm like, oh, I get it. Listen, yeah. Chick-fil-A is good without pot, but I was like, oh. I was like, I get it. Even just the crunch of the chicken. For me, it was an ice cream sundae. I had an ice cream sundae. I was 30 years old. I had not been a pot smoker my whole life. I'd maybe smoked pot a handful of times. And then when I was 30 years old, a buddy of mine said, he was a musician, my friend Eddie Bravo, who's a musician, jujitsu guy. And he's like, dude, it helps me creatively. I love it. I was like, really? I just thought it made you stupid. (laughs) I thought it was just a thing that made people dumb. So we, we smoked pot and went to Dairy Queen. And like, oh my God, Baskin Robbins. That's where we went, Baskin Robbins. I remember I had a hot fudge Sunday, and I remember eating the hot fudge with the nuts and the vanilla ice cream. I was like, this is sensational. I've never tasted food like this. And I was like, I get it now. I get it. I get it. Yeah, it was the Chick Fil A that that made me. I was oh, like, I, I was like, I understand. It. But it kind of like it's weird. It like it makes me feel like. My my head is kind of like closing in around my brain. I get this weird like pressure in my yeah. You get scared from too. it. I I didn't get scared, but it's like I found it kind of like uncomfortable and annoying. I didn't like. I love to like. I like to drink. Did you try sex on it? No. That's the move. Really? Oh my god. Bon, I didn't oh know what a move. God. Really? Sex on marijuana. <laughs> Someone else could on the bottom. Maybe. It feels so different. It feels so like everything. It's like you can feel the person's soul. It's wild. Really? Yeah. It's a complete game changer. So the gummies? Will that yeah, work with the yeah, gummies? Yeah, the gummies work. <laughs> you have to realize that gummies is a different thing because uh, THC is what happens when you smoke it. But when you eat it, it's processed by your liver and it produces 11-hydroxy metabolite. It's much more psychoactive. It's like four to five times more psychoactive than THC. So it's way more powerful. That's why a lot of people, when they eat marijuana, they think they got dosed. Because mm. it is essentially a psychedelic. And when you take high-dose um, edibles, high-dose edibles with an isolation tank is as wild as any mushroom trip I've ever done. 
It's really crazy. Like you see crazy visuals, like fucking pyramids and UFOs and like these these like cartoonish neon figures that are mating. I remember I took a really strong edible once and got on a flight, and it was one of the craziest experiences of my life. All I did was close my eyes and curl up in a position. I had a window seat, so it was like my head was up against the window, and my eyes were closed. And the whole flight, I was watching these animated neon characters breed. They were like having sex and making all these other animated characters, and then it was like this weird sort of fractal effect, and it was, it was hypnotic, and it, it was it, it was insane, and it lasted for a good solid hour. Pass. Yeah, I'm man, it's, pass. it'll freak you the fuck <laughs> do, out. Do you write when you're high? Like yes. you write jokes, and you when yeah. you. George Carlin, I think, had the best idea. What George Carlin would do is he would write sober, and then he would smoke pot and punch it up. So he'd have concepts. <laughs> so he'd have these concepts and just figure out, you know, where the humor is, where the irony is, and then he would get high. That's like the exact opposite of the adage, which is write drunk, edit sober. Mm, that's like the exact. Right, uh, that's right, that's right, like right. write sober. Edit high, but you're trying for funny, right? I, th like write drunk, edit sober is great because you can take out the self-indulgent stuff and the chaos and and sort of whittle it into a more conducive form for human consumption. But there's something about writing high where you find the funny. If it's a, it's not a, it's not like write so you know write drunk, edit sober. It's when you edit high, you're literally editing for giggles. You're, you're looking for, and you'll find pathways that are funny. I think George had it, well, obviously George is one of the all-time greats, and he had, it, oh, he had a great method. I've used that method, but I also use the get high as fuck method and write. <laughs> That's a great method, too. I like to do that late at night. Because, you know, I have family, I have children, it's, it's, I can't be getting high during the day when my kids are in the house, so what I do is I wait until everyone's asleep, and then I get barbecued, and then usually after a show, like I'll come home from a show at like 12.30 at night, and I'll just sit in front of the keyboard and just start, start mashing ideas. That's great. I've never, I've never, I mean, I've written work drunk before, but I just like, I don't know, it's kind of, in my line of work, I guess, a little more important to have your wits about you <laughs> yeah but it's it is there's a it's a tool you know it's it's you can use it correctly and you can get a lot out of it or you can start abusing it you know it's i'm a giant fan of stephen king and stephen king's book on writing is one of my favorite books on the creative process it's a great book but one of the things that comes out of that book is, first of all, his, his thankfulness of his sobriety, his love for his family, and how he realized he could have lost it all because he was really like off the rails crazy and doing pounds of blow and fucking drinking cases of beer every night Couldn't while he was tell writing. that from his books. <laughs> Interesting. Well, the thing is, that's my point, is those are the best books. <laughs> they really are. The best man. albums, yeah. yeah no, dude, that, <laughs> you go back and you read Carrie, you read The Shining, you read Cujo. Like, that was his wildest shit, man. And he was out of his mind. He was out of his mind. And he just reached... It's not that he can't write without it. He, absolutely. He's one of the greats. But the the stuff that he wrote when he was fucked up was magic, like magically horrific scenarios, <laughs> you know, because he was battling these like real time demons in his head while he's mashing those keyboards. I'm going to read that. But I haven't read the book, his book about writing. Oh, it's really I good. I love, you know, sometimes like writing about writing is like dancing about architecture, yeah. talking about love. But like, it's like, it's. 
I, I'm 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 endlessly fascinated by writers writing yes, about writing. Me too. Yeah. And he his I think his memoir that is a memoir, and it's it's I think it's one of the best because it's it's about many things. It's about his life. It's about how incredible he found his early success and how rewarding it was and how chaotic it was and overwhelming and how he couldn't believe it was real and and then it's also about his demons and struggles and then it's also about recovery from getting hit by a fucking bus or a, a van rather you know like that, that's what he got hit by his right? accident Something yeah like that. yeah and his, his body got destroyed you know and then trying to pick up the pieces and start writing again it's great it's a fantastic book it's really good but the things that struck me is like, man, when he was off the rails, he wrote some good shit. <laughs> That's the th it's like that kind of stuff. Like when you go back and you read The Shining, I mean, The Shining was about an author that was losing his fucking mind in a haunted house. And in a lot of ways, that was probably what was happening to Stephen King with the cocaine and the alcohol and, the, you know, and he's writing this crazy shit while he's battling his, his own literal demons. The alienation from your family. Yes, and your, yeah, yeah your all that. And, yeah. yeah. The fucking chaos in his head. A lot of that is, you know, I had to, when I was here last time, I had written a play for some reason. And so, um, like, writing is the hardest thing. It's the hardest thing. It's very isolating. I literally went to hotels. I got hotel rooms just by myself just to to sit and write. And it's so and writing on command. It's like stand up. Like I think stand up comedy is like one of the bravest, <laughs> one of the bravest professions because it's like go be funny now. Be funny on it. It's like you have a date and a time when you have to go and be funny. Right. And it's just like I think and it's and it's fucking stressful. And it doesn't matter how good the material may be in advance. Sometimes it's not gonna work. You know, I've seen like my appreciation for, for stand up comedy came from watching legends bomb. Mm. I've been in a room where like I'm the only motherfucker laughing at Gilbert Gottfried. I've where, been in a where room. Where have you been? Where was that? That was, at, that was at the old Miami Improv. Remember the one at the uh, the Seminole Coconut Grove? The, no, that was it. No, well, the not the oldest Miami Improv, but the Miami Improv before the last. Now it's in Doral. Uh, it was at uh, a Hollywood, the Seminole Hard Rock Hotel. Oh, okay. That one. Yeah, 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 I saw him bomb there. I went to Vegas in like 2000-ish, and I got to town, oh, my girl at the time, and I saw Carlin's name on a marquee, and I was like, well, that settles that. Like, right. I got on the phone, I was like, Carlin tickets, and my grandpa knew some high roller at that hotel, I forget which hotel it was, and they got us front row, and so it Ooh. was like a comedy club, it's a cabaret, like, you know, like style room, but like, um, it was, you know, with the table, you know, perpendicular to the stage, you know, and we were sitting like the fucking stage was right here. And then Carlin was like right up here. And so he was doing that bit about because he was I was actually obviously trying out material for his, his HBO next day, which, which, which was the the God bit. The I don't believe in God. I believe in Joe Pesci. I believe in the mm, sun. That yeah. whole God. But he's doing this whole God riff, which he was clearly still, I think, working on at the time. And so I'm hysterically laughing. And I'm realizing that well, other than Carlin's voice, the only thing I'm hearing is my laughter. Oh, God. In an empty, sold-out fucking showroom. And I, I literally turn, because I became self-conscious about it. And I turn around, as you imagine this shot from my POV, I kind of pan the room, and I look at these people, these just good God-fearing Americans who just were not about... <laughs> 
Carlin dissing the, the 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 big guy or the big girl, and he, and they're just like stone. It's like the audience of the producers watching Springtime for Hitler. They're right. just like fucking appalled. And so I I sweep the room, I come back, and I look up here, and George Carlin's nose is right here, and he's bending down off the stage at me, <laughs> and we're practically nose to, and he goes, "Thank you, sir." And then, and then walk because I'm the only motherfucker laughing in the room. He goes, "Thank you, sir." And then walk, and then stalks off back off the stage. And I was just like, "Wow, oh my god!" And I watched George Carlin bomb, and one of the funniest human beings to ever exist in this universe, and probably one of the smartest human beings as well, I'd say. And uh, just which is an added bonus that he was so fucking funny. And I saw Carlin bomb bomb in New Hampshire. In 1988 or 89, somewhere around then, he went through a rough patch hmm. where um, I don't know what was going on, but I was a big fan of his before this. And then during this, there was a few albums I remember because George would put out a he would put out an HBO special every year. And what he would do differently than other comedians is he would write it all out. And then he would bring uh, legal paper on stage yeah. and he would have the script for what he was doing and he had no problem like having the notes on a, a stool and he would go over it and he had this one routine that he was trying to close with and it just was bombing and it was fuck it was basically fuck everything it was fuck <laughs> Israel fuck comedy clubs fuck God fuck the church it was like he was going through this whole thing and it just wasn't working it just didn't resonate and I remember thinking wow that's this is weird like I'm watching because I, I brought my roommates and my roommates were kind of unsophisticated at the time it's to put it mildly <laughs> and they're like what is this this is fucking terrible and we, you know we drove all the way to New Hampshire to watch George Carlin bomb I feel like that's always the way when you recommend somebody like to watch something or see a show It's, yeah. it's always the worst episode that's gonna be on next because they're like they're like you have no taste like well, this is when I was just either thinking about doing stand-up or starting to do stand-up it was in that range so I was a, an evangelist I was like you got to see this guy oh my god Dom Herrera is the funniest guy that's ever lived come see this guy with me so I was dragging my friends with me to these comedy clubs and some of them were brutes some of my friends <laughs> that I knew at the time from my martial arts days were crazy people and they they had you know no artistic sophistication whatsoever you had to beat them over the head with the jokes or they weren't going to get it and that, there was a lot of uh, value in that too cuz you get to watch comedy from people that w with people rather that were not comedy fans i got to see like how like sort of subtle stuff just didn't hit them at all ironic stuff you know it's, it was interesting to see but I'd taken them to see everybody, and when I took them all the way to fucking New Hampshire to see George Carlin, he bombed. Dom Herrera requires a sophisticated palate. Dom Herrera, I, I love Dom Herrera. He's <laughs> one of the all-time greats. He's such a. Have you ever met him? I have. He's awesome. Yeah. He's such a great guy. He's so fucking funny too, and he's a guy that like never stopped working on his act. And as opposed to like some comics got to this point where as they got older, they just never wrote anymore. They, they hmm. sort of relied on their old material or they relied on their reputation. Dom Herrera was always in the trenches, still is. I was really lucky for a while. I was, I was, I would appear whenever I was in Miami in town at home, I would go on this show um, 
the Paul and Young Ron show on yeah, on I know radio. those guys. Yeah. Uh, and so Ron's gone; he he retired. Uh, but Paul Castronova's still there, and he would have me on the show every Friday to talk about whatever movies were coming out that weekend, or just talk shit. And that was, of course, the day when the stand-ups were promoting their weekends right, at, right, at the Improv. And so I'd wind up with just the coolest people in in a studio. And what I found, which was really cool, is that because that was time-wise, that was like the dawn, like of Netflix streaming. And so mm. all these comics on the road were like, all I do is sit in the hotel or in the apartment and I watch Netflix streaming. And so a lot of them had been exposed to my work and it turned out like I'm big fans of theirs and they're big fans. It's kind of the fun thing about this business, like the entertainment, it's like, you know, you don't know who your fans are. And right. some of them are much cooler, me rest assured, much cooler than I am. Um, I, had, I, wound up, I wound up in Janet Jackson's mansion one, one time in Miami Beach because she like summoned us to the mansion. Summoned? How did she summoned do that? Did she have a horn? To an agent. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, like the, it's a shofar, really. And so we got a, a call from uh, an agent who was a mutual friend. And he said, Janet is in town. She's renting a mansion on Lagorse Island. God, that's so wild. Lagorse Island is where Sal Magluda from Coking Cowboys, the Kings of Miami, rented no. a mansion as well. So that's how I knew Lagorse. I'm like, fucking Sal Magluda's mansion, rental mansion. <laughs> so she said, she's here recording an album. She wants to meet you. She's a huge fan. And I was like, she. Did she think who? you were the guy from the Smashing Pumpkins? Yeah, I was like, who does she? <laughs> Did the she? Fuck? I'm the guy. I'm the one with the hair. Does she know that? I'm like, not Billy Corgan. And who incidentally has at Billy on Twitter? Was he like a fucking investor in Twitter? Like, how did he got at Billy? I don't know. So, Billy's smart. So what happens is like, when people go want to want to tweet at him, they go at Billy C.O.R. And my name, I guess, like autofills uh, because they go right past at Billy, which he has at Billy. And so I get all kinds of like when they're like <laughs> upset at how he treated Daisy on wrestling on Sunday. Or I'm like, what the fuck is going on? Like, you're so mean to Daisy. I'm like, what the fuck is happening? Like, why? Who, who do you That's think hilarious. I am? But like, um, but like uh, we get so Janet wants to to meet you. And so we come to this mansion. We're sitting with her manager at the time. It was this great, big, hilarious dude. And we're just chilling on the couch. And all of a sudden, he looks up. And all of a sudden, at the top of the stairway, a vision. Janet Jackson, she's like in this beautiful, like, muumuu. It's like, I don't know. It's just like seeing like a, like Nefertiti, like, like fucking. Uh, Royalty. Like Cleopatra appear at that. We're just all just like, uh, there's like, you know, the angels are singing and she's beautiful. And so like, and she like descends the staircase, you know, and we're just like, this is incredible. And she sits down. And she is just like the sweetest, like most casual down to earth person. And she goes into this story. She's like, one morning my phone rings. It's like four o'clock in the morning and it's Jermaine Dupree, not Jackson, her brother. She was dating Jermaine Dupree at the time. And, she sa and I said, baby, is everything okay? He says, yes, I'm coming over right now. There's something you need to see. And she goes, okay, it's four o'clock in the morning. Shows up at the door. She's like, are you sure everything's okay? Yes, everything's fine, baby. You've got to watch this. And he hands me a DVDR written in Sharpie. It says, cocaine cowboys. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, I'm with their, my producing partner, Alfred Spellman. I'm just like, what the fuck is no. happening right now? What the fuck is happening? And she said, and I watched it twice. She put the DVD, the bootleg, 
into the DVD player at four o'clock in the morning and she watched Cooking Cowboys twice. And she's like, you know, when we were growing up, my sister, she was interested in love story and romance novels. She's talking about LaToya right now. Right. Like we know too much about this family, right? You know, so like, she's like, she, lo- she goes, I loved, you know, mafia stories, crime stories, Scarface, Crime Incorporated, Al Capone. That was my thing. And so I loved it. And she wanted to talk about Griselda Blanco, the godmother. Uh. And I'm like, this is batshit crazy. So she says, do you guys like sushi? Alfred hates sushi. He says, yeah, I like sushi. (laughs) She says, we should go to Nobu and have sushi next week. He's like, yeah, absolutely. Love sushi. And we went out with Janet Jackson oh my God. to Nobu. And she's like, and we shared, it was, it was surreal. It was just, it was a weird, wild experience. That, that's what happened with, with, uh, with Tony Bourdain is I don't drink beer. I drink whiskey or gin. And so we get a call from Tony. Why? So specific. That's just what I like. I like, I, I'm not, I'm agnostic when it comes to Whiskey, I'll drink. I feel like any whiskey will. I like good whiskey, but any whiskey will do. When it comes to gin, I got. I'm a little bit more of a stickler because you can't. Bad gin is a bad night and a worse morning. Oh, but yeah? like, but whiskey, I don't like. I can just. I can drink all kinds of whiskey, but like gin, I'm very. I'm very picky about. But I don't drink beer, and so Tony's producer calls and says, Tony would like to have a beer and stone crabs with you for the show. I said, yes, <laughs> yes, you better believe I'm, I'm drinking beer. And we Stone did. crabs go with beer, though. Stone, yeah, and we had like a local brewed. We, Miami, we don't make a lot of shit, you know, like we don't have, like you go to Colorado, like, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to try some local whiskey, right, some local, you know, and I'm like, which one of those is like a Colorado? And they're like, all of them. They're all made. Miami, we don't have, like we make a rum, we, and now we have some microbreweries. We don't, we don't, man, we don't make a right, lot of shit, right. you know, so, um, so, uh, we, we had a, a locally brewed beer and stone crabs a Captain Jim's for the show and talked. And then the sh- they stopped shooting and we just sat there for like another hour just chilling. And we didn't do much eating on camera and, and then just eating and talking. And it was unforgettable. You have to know that Cocaine Cowboys is without doubt one of the top five greatest documentaries of all time. There's no doubt. That's it's, very nice of you. Thank you. I've seen hundreds of documentaries. I've never, I've never seen a documentary as many times in a row as I've seen Cocaine Cowboys. You and Janet Jackson. Yeah. So many times <laughs> I've had people over the house, and I'm like, dude, you got to fucking watch this. And just looking over at my friends 20 minutes in where they're like, <laughs> like, bro, it gets crazier. It gets crazier. And there's a part two. It does. You're right. It does get crazier, actually. Yeah, it really does. And now yeah. I guess we should talk about this. We have a fucking whole series on Netflix now. How many episodes is this? Six. I'm only two in. I'm two in yeah. now. But God damn, it's good. It's like all your shit. Man. It gets better. Oh, I can only it imagine. It's, it is a fucking amazing how many insane stories have come out of this one part of the country. And, you know, <laughs> I had a buddy of mine. I think I told you this. My good friend Steve Graham did his residency. He's an ophthalmologist. He did his residency in Miami during the 80s, during the chaos days. And he would, like, save Polaroids of, like, just some of the craziest shit that that they saw. Best place to ply your trade. I mean, really, whatever business you were in, especially in those days. You were in law enforcement. You were a lawyer, prosecutor, a doctor. Yeah, and you name it. That was the place that you wanted. A journalist, God yes. knows, that oh, yeah. was where you wanted to apply your trade. I know a 
pardon me, a guy who was working as an ER doctor, uh, Jackson, at the trauma center uh, in, in 1980. The Mariel Boatlift had just happened. You remember, this is how Scarface opens. Um, oh, okay. Castro opens up the Mariel Harbor and sends the oh, allows people to leave, and he empties the prisons, the mental yeah. institutions, the hospitals, and just he said, "I flush the toilet of Cuba onto right. the United States," and it created a real crisis. I mean, four counties in South Florida nearly got bankrupt because you're absorbing 150 refugees, some small percentage of which are, you know, dangerous people, and you don't know. Who they are. Yeah, you can't weed them out. And so, but then you have to absorb the infirm and the sick and the young and people who don't have, you know, health care or housing or or food. And so um, Miami Beach looks a lot like like Havana, like the seawall, you know, like the the seawall and the Malacone. It's like it's so a lot of and at that time, it was just like it was in Scarface. It was like it was like 75 percent plus Jewish, a lot of Holocaust survivors, literally just God's waiting room, they called it, just playing mm. out the rest of their lives. Inefficiencies on Ocean Drive, flop houses that would like $125 a week, maybe. That was high. Like, that's what you could live in Miami Beach for. So people on fixed incomes, you know, Social Security, elderly, retired. And then it attracted a lot of the, the, the Mariel, Marielitas, particularly the criminal element. And there were places where, like, the Miami Beach Police Department would just literally just drive around the block because they keep getting calls to go to this. Oh, this guy just got shot. This guy just got stabbed. This guy. And it was over dumb shit. It was Wild West shit. It was like over a Domino's game, you know. And so one day, this trauma uh, surgeon is working at the ER, and in comes a Mariel refugee with a gunshot wound. And he says to the guy who's bilingual, he says, tells him in Spanish, he says, listen, you're very lucky. He said, if you had been shot, you know, just millimeters this way, it would have hit a vital organ, you would have bled out, you would have been dead before you even got here. Saves the guy, guy goes on his way. Days later, he gets another guy, another patient, a Mariel refugee, with a gunshot wound in exactly the same place he told the other guy that if you shot, he got shot there, he would die, and this guy died. And he could never prove it, but he always believed that that was a retaliation shooting. For the first guy that he had in there, but like that happened like sto- people have like stories like that for fucking days It was the number one uh, Mayor's jewelers in South Florida number one seller of Rolex watches the mutiny hotel Which is we talk about in the dock in, in actually several docks Which was the inspiration for the Babylon Club and Scarface. They were the number one seller of Dom Perignon They had to like convert hotel rooms into refrigerated walk-in units for the Dom Perignon because they could not keep it uh, in stock they all they also filled the tubs the mutiny girls would fill the tubs in the in the in the rooms with the with the Dom Perignon as well so they could build the customers but so that was part of where the where the supply was uh, going but that was a different kind of party depending on what you were willing to pay but Miami is just one of those places in that era you know yeah. when it became America's Casablanca I mean look the the our number one and two industries at that time still today um, early 1980s Miami uh, number two was tourism generating upwards of about $7 billion a year into the Miami-Dade economy. Number one, I should say legitimate industry, uh, was real estate, generating about $9 billion a year into the economy in Miami. The drug trade at the time was estimated to bring in upwards of $12 billion a year into our local economy. So what you're saying is our number one business was an illicit trade, was the illegal drug trade, the money laundering. And I will tell you, I believe it to be the only case study I should say the only successful case study of Ronald Reagan's trickle-down economics. It's mm. the only time it worked was in the drug boom in Miami because banditos rob a bank and they ride on into the next to- town, right? And they spend their ill-gotten gains. They stayed in Miami. They kept that money 
in Miami. So that trickled down from the kingpins to banks, into real estate, into people who were not in the illicit trade, but just, you know, I'll give you an example. Somebody, um, let's do the bottom of the food chain in the drug industry. If you were a weekend warrior, you would want to show up and maybe do some grunt work, do some, you knew a drug smuggler, which was not uncommon in Miami. Everybody knew a drug smuggler. Marco Rubio spent a summer living in a cocaine stash house that belonged to his, to his uh, brother-in-law. Really? In Miami, we're all guilty by geography. You know, <laughs> we're all complicit by just virtue of proximity to, to colorful characters. Yeah, he, Mark Rubio was like 14. He wasn't in the drug trade, but his brother-in-law was a major cocaine trafficker. And they lived in uh, West Kendall in Miami-Dade, southwest Miami-Dade, in a cocaine stash house for a summer. That's like a rite of passage, like a quinceanera or bar mitzvah <laughs> in Miami. Like, I spent the summer in my brother-in-law's cocaine stash house by Marco Rubio. Uh, Must have made a really interesting paper for uh, <laughs> for high school. What I did with my, with my summer vacation. Um. But that's just like, that's Miami. We're all touched by this. And so let's say you say to your buddy, hey, listen, I want to come out and just help you unload a plane, right? Grunt work, physical labor. What do you get? Guy says, I'll give you $10,000 to come out. Cash, tax-free. Come on. So here's a guy not really in the drug business, just comes out to do some manual labor, gets $10,000 cash. This is a guy probably making in those days about $15,000 a year on the books, taxable income. But he's getting $10,000, let's say once a month, cash in Miami. So he's got $120,000 cash. Where? Stash somewhere. Where do you even put it? Cash became like a real <laughs> liability because it was just, it's so bulky and annoying. People are putting it in walls and burying it and banks are charging you a VIG to deposit cash because they had no fucking place to put it. And so, but you have $120,000. So people spent it. It went into everything. And that was the thing. If you weren't ad- addicted to cocaine in Miami, you were addicted to that that money and that's that's the legacy too is that is is, you know the tech hub hustle it's just the new cocaine Mm. it's just the new hollywood east never happened it's just the new modern art hub never happened it's just it's a hustle we just we have to subsist that way because we don't have any other any other industry well it also it, it it's the center of flossing in the country Right. If you think about people that are just driving Lamborghinis and wearing giant rope chains, you think about Miami. Like the the, the culture is so flashy. Fake it to make it. But it's it's fake or, it to make it. But it's also people that have it and want you, want you to know. It's all those things, right? Yeah, but that's it's, like some nouveau riche business. That's yeah, what I said. Yeah. You get people from money don't necessarily right. behave. No. They usually don't want you to know. Right. That they have money it makes them vulnerable. It makes them targets, you know. Right. And so, they're, you know, if you're rich, you don't tell people you're rich. Yeah. If you're smart, you don't tell people you're smart. I knew this guy who was his family was insanely wealth, like generational wealth, and they got mad at him when he bought a Porsche. They got mad at him. They're like, "What are you driving? What are you doing with this fucking thing?" He's like, "It's a nice car." They're like, "You fucking idiot." <laughs> Like they wanted, like everybody shut the fuck up because they were billionaires. They want to like shut the fuck up. I think about De Niro and Goodfellas when you say that. Right, the, cat, the, woman right. With the, the guy the with the, with the, cat. the, yes, with the fucking the get that fucking uh, fucking yes. take that back. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like keep it on the DL, man. But Miami is like just universally known for being like the flashiest place in the country. I I don't think there's a flashier place. Hollywood is not as flashy as Miami. Not even close. No, and it's like where people come from Hollywood also to be that ostentatious. Right. Yeah, it's to that get, yeah. to get crazy. Yeah, it's a baller economy. It's like yeah. that's you know that's what it is. I mean, Someone told me there's more banks per capita in Miami than any other major metropolitan city. That was definitely true at one time, and we had probably more international branches. You know, like branches of foreign banks, and that it was uh, well. all about processing cocaine money. And that was the reason why there were so many banks there. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, it's it's not a coincidence that we're now like a, a, a Bitcoin hub, you know, like, I mean, right. it's like, I mean, Crypto Cowboys will probably be my next documentary ah! at this rate. I mean, like, ser- like, listen, we, <laughs> it's, I'm not saying people use Bitcoin to money launder. I'm just saying they people may use, use Bitcoin, Bitcoin to money, to money yeah. launder. And so, yeah. um, first of all, I don't even know why a decentralized currency needs a hub. Isn't that the whole point? Is that right. a decentralized? Why, why does Miami have to be a crypto hub? First of all, we don't have the electricity. We don't have the power. I guess you could use the nuclear power plant, which one of these days is going to melt down. We have like more incidents and like. Oh, is it a bad power plant? It's not. It, and they and they like they forge documents. We had like oh, alarms, Jesus and they Christ. yeah. I mean, it's talking about fa- fa- if you're if you're gonna fake it so you make it at Turkey Point at the fucking power at the nuclear power plant, you got you got problems. Are you gonna make you know? nuclear cowboys? I, I listen. I, I hope <laughs> I hope to live long enough to make yeah. Like I don't start growing a tail, and the and the alligators don't start you know turning into Godzilla or whatever. But well, a lot uh, of these older power plants, apparently, no, I'm not very knowledgeable about this. But when I talk to people that are physicists. They've said that nuclear power plants can be made today and be made far more efficiently. And they're actually like very good for the environment in terms of like what you put in versus what gets out. But the older ones, like when they made them in the 60s and the 70s, he's like, they're a real problem. And we saw it with Fukushima because when the backup generator went down and they they realized oh we're fucked like this thing's going to melt down and there's no way to stop it and now we have a perpetually contaminated area that will be like this way for eons like yeah, and ours is on the water and yeah. it's like so is Fukushima. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Dr- like it, it is like Godzilla shit. Yeah. You know, there's actually, there's actually this hilarious, terrible, like, I can't even call it a B movie. It's like a Z movie. It was executive produced by some Colombian drug traffickers beca- to launder their money through this movie. It's called <laughs> Island Claws. And it's about a nuclear incident that creates these aggressive, gigantic crabs that are like attacking, <laughs> attacking like South Florida, and like, and they shot it in Virginia. They shot it all over Miami, and and that's the thing too. It's like I'm not saying that everything in Miami is money laundering, but everything in Miami is is basically money laundering. I mean, that's that's. I mean, what else? What else do we do there? I mean, Willie and Sal, the uh, Los Muchachos, the boys from Cocaine Cowboys, the Kings of Miami, they helped to start a bank. With some of their high school buddies from Miami High, appropriately Miami High, um, they helped start a bank expressly for the purpose of drug money laundering. Sunshine State Bank. It was a drug money laundering bank. Everybody knew it. It was founded by. It was for expressly for that purpose. And mm. yeah, and they had a guy. This is funny. This is from a deleted scene. Um, they had a guy, an attorney um, named Juan Acosta. He was very popular let's say, among Miami's nouveau riche of the late 70s and, and early 80s. The sudden, sudden millionaires and billionaires that we had cropping up. I mean, Willie and Sal were accused by the government of smuggling over 75 tons of cocaine worth over $2 billion with a B. And that was only what the government thought they knew about. So you can imagine, their co-conspirators said, one of them says in the documentary, I think it was more like 175 tons. These guys spent $25 million on their defense in their first in their first trial, so holy shit! These, yeah, talk about a dream team. They they had they had they put OJ. Did they to get shame. off? They, well, you have to. It's episode, you're on episode okay. episode three. You gotta you gotta <laughs> you gotta get through episode <laughs> okay, three. Okay. But these guys had this lawyer to set up their offshore companies. You know, to kind of conceal their ill-gotten gains, money laundering. You know, he would set up these foreign companies, particularly in Panama, which was a at the time a you know drug uh, trafficking and laundering friendly uh, state. In fact, we raided it. Be, you know, because of that. And so 
Uh, they needed a man on the ground in country to be on the corporate documents, right, as an officer, as their treasurer. So this guy, Guillermo Indara, appears on all of these uh corporate documents as an officer in these shell companies for drug money laundering. Then the United States of America goes and invades Panama under the guise of the war on drugs, ostensibly because Manuel Noriega, the president, was an enabler of drug trafficking, was a you know drug money launderer, and so we had to take him out. We brought him actually to Miami, to the Southern District of Florida, to, be, to go on trial for this, right? And then the, we install a new president in Panama. Who do we install? Guillermo Indara. The drug money launderer oh who was God. on listed in the documents of all these cocaine traffickers oh who was there was was their uh, their money launderer in Panama. The United States makes him the president of Panama. Jesus That's a deleted Christ. scene, by the way, from our documentary. Why? Yeah, why like you, if you, why'd you delete that? <laughs> if you couldn't to Netflix's YouTube page, you can uh, you can see it there. But, but um, why'd you take that out? Listen, like. I should have called I should have called this instead of Kings of Miami we could all like cocaine cowboys we've got hours of this shit I mean because like <laughs> there's no and and you all the crazy shit that's in the movie and some people will, listen I I say that's tantamount to malpractice cutting cutting that out of the documentary but you just have to it's just time you just have to and you're crafting a thing listen the pressure of building a six part thing you need listen I'm always looking for the button right I'm doing an interview with someone what's the last line Right, you mm. want to leave them on a high. Right. Leave, you know, what's the? I'm always. What's the last line? What's the last line? Here, I need fucking. I need six of them. Right. Buttons, cliffhangers, some way to get people. I take that seriously, but I think we've all seen documentary series that were eight hours or ten hours and should have been three. Yeah. Or four. For like sure. The like, Cecil Hotel one that they did. Like, I'm not going to name. Names, yeah. But, there's you know. been a few of those where yeah. they they you go. Oh, I see what you're doing here. You right. just you got contracted to do four of these and you really should right. have done one. Right. And yeah. so they're being a little bit more, the buyers are being more vigilant about that. Because there, mm. there was a moment where it was like, because the first Cocaine Cowboys documentary was four hours long. And then I had to cut God, it down. Because it was no market. But there was, make I, it four hours well, I, did, I did Cocaine Cowboys Reloaded in 2014, which is two and a half hours, if you've never seen that. And I, it's I 60% new material. Well, have you ever thought about take, going back and making a director's cut with the four hours and doing it with Netflix or something along those lines? It's basically what Reloaded... Is. is more or less yeah because it also was structurally different i think we, we found a better way to to build it but what's what's really weird about this is that uh cooking cowboys the kings of miami we've been working on it for 12 years so basically when i first met you i was already well like well underway wow. on this project because even though it's the fourth release in the franchise we'll call it um it was the first story that we wanted to tell how many people you have working for you on these things like with you on the court, like yeah, you, like regular producers, like editors. Oh, we we're a boutique operation. Um, we make everything by hand. You know, like I'm, I'm. My editors call me a frame fucker. Like they said, Billy, stop frame fucking. Stop because I'll watch every <laughs> and I'll be like, no, no, no. It just like yeah. every little frame. You know that's why it's um, so good though, man. I like, have to think that that's why your work's so good. Scrapes years off the end of my life. <laughs> I'm sure it does, man. But I'm telling you, it's it's very, very appreciated on my end. Thank you. When I watch your stuff, <laughs> you can tell. It's like you don't half-ass anything. It's so compelling. Your stuff is all so good. Thank you. It's this, the ones I, that I feel click, like that I know are like, going to work, because you don't always know. You come in the, with the best of intentions. And after you work on something for 12 years, you can't see the forest for the trees. I mean, you're right. just, yeah, you don't sure. know. You know, and so you do your best, and then you just, you know, send it out into the world and listen it's not up to me i always say the measure of a successful filmmaker 
It's not uh, money or uh, uh, critical acclaim or awards. It's that you get to work again. You know, so right. like it's so I serve at the pleasure of an audience, and if we yeah. get the eyeballs, and we get to make, we get to make another one. And so with this one, I just when they start to, I know this sounds weird, but like when they start to sing to me is when I know they work. I think some of our best documentaries are musicals, like they just. They sing, they just move. So uh, my composer on this, uh, uh, Carlos Jose Alvarez, actually the the, uh, the uh, soundtrack drops on, on Spotify and all the streaming services finally. Um, it's amazing. And I said to him, I said, listen, I said, I want it all rooted in Afro-Cuban beats and rhythms and salsa music. Like, I don't care if it's like, if it's a suspense scene or an action scene, I want it all to feel like, be unapologetically Miami, mm. you know, and, and Cuban American. And just, I wanted to sweat that. I said, I want, I said, I want you to picture this. Somebody sitting in bed, you know, their feet, and this is my feet. I'm sitting in bed watching this documentary for fucking six hours or four and a half hours, six parts. I want their foot to be tapping the entire time. Just keep time, you know, just like keep the rhythm, like let there be like, and that's the thing when it like there's a, it's like a show. Like you want, you want there to yeah. be a rhythm and a cadence and, a, and you want the audience to, to, to fall into that, right? I mean, I don't take the audience's time for granted. Okay, we have a finite amount of time between now and the day we die. If you're going to give me four and a half hours of that, I'm going to entertain you. You know, yeah, I want to, there's going to be investigative journalism in there. We kind of, we, sometimes we call our work, uh, uh, but Todd uh, calls it uh, a Trojan horse. You know, you kind of, it's, you know, you think it's one thing, but you're getting a little bit, <laughs> a little bit bonus. You, you kind of tempt the audience with the sugar and then you feed them some broccoli in there too, you know, and and because I think that that's as a as a documentary filmmaker, especially now with the ubiquity and there's so many documentaries, there's yeah. so much content. This is the know, golden age of documentaries. Golden age, and like it's just it's amazing. I'm not complaining, God knows, but the but there's only so much time the audience has, right. and why watch this and not this, and why spend six parts on this and not ten parts on this, and and part of that decision making is you know they want to be. <laughs> they want to be entertained in this era because there's so many documentaries. Is it harder to get people to to really zoom in on one? Hmm. Is it because there's so many choices? Is it this this thing where it's hard? It's like hey 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 over here over here. Is it is it more difficult? Because when Cocaine Cowboys came out, there was nothing like it. And I imagine, it, I mean, obviously it was traded around. All my friends, like, told everybody about it. And it, it became popular a lot through word of mouth. But there's so many documentaries now. Is it more difficult to get attention now for something, for your work? It's or so you, do you already have, but you already have a certain amount of momentum because of the stuff that you've already done in the past. Oh, yeah. Listen, if we had to break in now, it would be fucking impossible. Yeah. The fact that we've been doing this for 20 years and we have what year did cocaine cowboys come out 2006 mm. on bootleg <laughs> that was the that was bootleg? the bootleg release yeah that's where it blew up it blew up in the bootleg market really blew blew up strip clubs walmart parking lots the bootleg guy the flea market the flea the carol so city flea market people ripping you off helped you huge Wow. Huge. It was viral before viral was a With thing. With Janet Jackson. She got an R, right? She got, she got a DVD-R. DVD-R. That's, that's how it went viral. In mo uh. First and foremost, in the hip-hop community. And barbershops, flea markets, and it blew up. 
from there. It was That's it was a bootleg wild. phenomenon. A bootleg phenomenon. And we don't to this day. Some people thought we did it on purpose, which some hip hop artists did. That's like a street team kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Like sell, you know, sell the shit at the traffic lights, you know. Um, and we didn't. I wish we had. I wish I could say like we're that smart or right. you know clever at marketing. But people thought we did it. We leaked it on purpose because it just blew blew up. Wow. Yeah, in the bootleg market. And when was two? Two was oh eight. Oh, so quickly afterwards. Yeah, it was. It was like it was like a direct to. I was young. I needed the money. <laughs> it was like you know. It's like, but, it's but like it was that still porn great, I did that one though. time. You know? it, it was still great. <laughs> I mean, did you? But did you have in like so much stuff that you wanted to cover in one? Oh, yeah. That you just included into? Oh yeah, there was and, tons of stuff. Yeah. And that was when was that when Griselda was out? Griselda was out. Yeah, you know, she was released just before we finished. She's dead now. The first right? one. She was dead. Killed in 2012. Does that give you a little relief? Like, oh. She's not coming for me. Not particularly. I mean, she was chilling in Colombia. Like she was, you know, she was minding her own business for the yeah. for the most part. And I think she was killed over new beef, not old beef. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, new beef. Yeah. I mean, not Any really. Idea why? Not really new beef per se, but she was like she was out there in her community. She was, you know, she went to church every day. She went down to uh, to the old neighborhood where she grew up and and would go to the butcher shop and talk about someone who had it coming. We all have it coming, Joe. That, but that lady had it coming. <laughs> like, Jesus. If you believe in karma, um, and she was actually, you know, she was killed by a um, motorcycle assassin, uh, which, which, you know, one guy in the front driving, mm. one guy in the back with a with an automatic or semi-automatic weapon, and that was actually a methodology that she is credited with importing from Colombia to the United States. Oh, wow. That kind of helped turn Miami into that cocaine cowboys Wild West time in the in the 80s. And uh, yeah, and so she would, that's a, I, you, know, you know what they say, uh, uh, live by the motorcycle assassin, die by the motorcycle assassin. Yeah. <laughs> that lady is a particularly powerful example of what's possible when people start selling cocaine and making millions of dollars and develop that sort of psychopathic, murderous, you know, advancement at any cost mentality. Well, you're also a woman in a cocaine cowboys b o y s in a, in in, mm. a, in a man's in very in a hyper masculine world, and you're in a trade where it was a consignment business. And back in Miami at that time, kilos were going for as much as fifty thousand dollars. So you give someone, you know, if she's a she's a wholesaler, gives you four kilos, says go out and sell them. And in two weeks, or how much time you need? Two weeks? Great. Bring me back $200,000. Well, for the end of those two weeks, they don't have your $200,000. You don't file a, you know, a lawsuit. You have, to, you have to enforce your trade. So she was known for being uniquely brutal uh, in her enforcement. And, and, uh, and they, they credited her with upwards of 200 homicides between Miami, Columbia, New York, and uh, California. Jesus. I guess if you're a woman and they don't take you seriously, you have to be particularly ruthless. Yeah. And she certainly was. Yeah. And, and probably a little bit of getting high in her own supply there at the, oh at the my end. God. <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's a business that, you know, if you're doing that, I mean, and it's so crazy in the first place that you're making so much money off of this illegal stuff that everybody wants. I mean, it lends itself to sort of chaotic brutality. And that's the reality. Like, if you want to talk about the success of the war on drugs, I mean, now the drug is as ubiquitous, just as pure, if not more so, and cheaper than it ever was before. And that's not because demand's down. It's because supply is ample. And so this is, it's, it was, they always treated it like a real 
business. I mean, like these guys in, in Kings of Miami, they called it like they called it the company. You work for the company. They had a headquarters. They had an opera. They had ledgers. They had books. They had records, which turn out to bite them yeah. in the ass. Uh, in the end, spoiler alert. No, you're, you know you're not there yet. But yeah. uh, you know, uh, but like meticulous records, and they treated it like a Fortune 500 company. They were CEOs of this multi-billion-dollar multinational corporation. Import, export, importing cocaine, exporting cash. Has anybody done it where they've kind of stayed under the radar? Like, does, has anybody ever done it successfully where they made a shitload of money, but did it all wisely, lived small, and got the fuck out of Dodge? Absolutely. Happened in Columbia, happened in Miami. Um, there are people who, made, but their careers were not long and they were not as lucrative uh, because that's the thing that makes William Sal so unique is that the average career I would guesstimate in the United States for a cocaine trafficker in that time period was not more than five years. Not more than slightly longer than an NFL player's uh, career, you know, um, three seasons, three and a half seasons. But like they, William Sal operated for like 20 years. That That's only going to end one way, dead or in prison. That's, yeah. that's, that's it. Or one of two ways, I should say, dead or in prison. So there were people who operated for a few years, for five years. And then just got out. And bought real estate. Wow. Got into legitimate businesses. Some did. Some went to jail, but still came out with a little bit of that money to then reinvest in a in a Medicare fraud operation or How some many new business. Bags of cash. Do you think are still buried in backyards all throughout Miami? I, I always, you know, we we, we keep um, pushing like the urban development line in Miami-Dade County. We keep slashing and burning the Everglades and you know poisoning our natural resources. And I don't know where all those people are going to live when we don't have clean water anymore or Turkey Point <laughs> goes belly up or the floods fucking come or your building just collapses in the middle of the night while you're sleeping. Pythons run out of things to eat. Absolutely. Fucking iguanas. These iguanas, yeah. it's like Jurassic fucking I park. know, dude. We've been, we've been following on the show. Dude. There's all these shows where people hunt iguanas. Yes. And hunt they cook them. them. Eat them. Yeah, apparently they kill good. They're fucking, they are destroying. And they're huge. Listen, they, and they burrow underneath. Houses. Cement house, seawalls and how, and shit collapses. I'm not, I'm not saying it was iguanas, but it was iguanas. I mean, they're fucking, and they're scared and aggressive and, and they're not native. Right. These are idiots who like got them as pets and then right. release them and they start mating with squirrels and what the fun raccoons and possums. You have these fucking crazy. They're like raptors. They're like those. They're, they're going to learn how to open big. doors, Joe. They're going to learn how to fucking open doors like the like the raptors did. We've been um, <sighs> documenting all these YouTube channels where people hunt them with like bow fishing rigs, and they they they're killing these five foot long iguanas in residential areas. My dad does it with a, right, with a, with a, with a he pelican? lives on a canal with a pelican. Yeah. And if, if, you have to, like you them? have to. Does he, your dad eat them? He does not eat them, they're not kosher. So my uh, dad, no, I'm just fucking, <laughs> <laughs> fucking with you. No, I, he does not eat, cause he doesn't cap, cause they're on the, they usually roll into right. the canal. He doesn't actually, cause yeah. he like goes over a fence, you know, like right. Lee Harvey Oswald style, you know, kind of like a grassy yeah. knoll, I should say, right, right. style. He fucking shoots the, uh, <laughs> shoots the iguanas and, and they're, but they're scared. And like, sometimes they're not dead. You know, they freeze. Yeah. And they fall out of trees and hit people. <laughs> they fall out of trees and hit people. Here's the thing. They can thaw out and they're not dead. They're not fucking dead. Really? They thaw out and they get up and run away. So when it warms up? Yes. <laughs> Dude, this is, I'm like, I'm not scared of a lot of shit. You're worried, you thought I was worried about Griselda Blanco. I'm worried about the iguanas, Joe. It's, it's 
Is petrifying. it is that bad? It's petrifying. And they're aggressive. They don't know. They just like get come up to you, they'll walk around. I mean, like, they're just they it's 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 a problem. It's a and they burrow. They burrow. The burrowing <laughs> thing's a real problem with houses. I do know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like buildings are just falling. Oh, get this. So you saw you saw episode two. Cooking Cowboys, another deleted scene. But this, 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 we didn't know about this until it was, uh, until it was, you know, literally too late, particularly for those 98 people who died at the Champlain Tower South uh, collapse in Surfside. But um, Alexia Echevarria, she's the beautiful blonde. She's known as the Cuban Barbie from the Real Housewives mm-hmm. of Miami. She's the guy that fell in love with Peggy Rosello, who is like the Henry Hill of their operation. He was a 12-year-old kid who was brother who was his older sister married Tabby Falcone, one of the boys. So he's now family. He's a brother-in-law of the Kings of Miami or the future Kings of Miami. He's the 12-year-old kid washing the cars and making more money on a weekend doing that than his dad was making. You know, this hard-working, you know, Cuban exile. But his kids surrounded by these at the time, kind of lower end drug dealers who were about to blow up, but getting they're giving him a hundred, two hundred dollars cash to you know to wash a car, and so he grows up steeped in that. He has this sort of like you know you grow my, Miami, like I said, we're guilty by geography. If you grow up in that time and place, people were becoming millionaires overnight. You must like that's the American dream to you. You're like oh the streets are paved with gold. This is the opportunity I'm talking about, and there was kind of a warped idea I think of what all that was. Um, I'm not making excuses, but just Miami was a different. Miami is a different place, and it was a seriously different place back there. Every, everybody was involved in this industry, or everybody knew someone who was involved in this industry, and in some way or another, everybody benefited from this industry. And so Alexia is at this club, Club New, 1987. It was one of the first big nightclubs, popular nightclubs in South Beach. And um, she's there, and Peggy wants to get with her. Jose Canseco is in VIP. He wants to get with her because Miami. That's like the most 1987 Miami thing you can imagine. VIP at this nightclub and you're in a love triangle with a a drug dealer and Jose Canseco. She didn't know he was a drug dealer yet, but they wind up, she winds up hooking up with Peggy and she starts hanging out at, uh, for the first time at his apartment on the ocean. Beautiful, like blinged out place on the fifth floor of this luxury condo. And they, they hang out at the beach and they're swimming and then they, they go to bed. And in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning, he gets a call and he says, yo, I got to split, but you could stay here. And she's like, she thought for sure he's got a wife. He's got a girlfriend. I'm not. I'm not going to fucking chill here with this guy. Fuck this. And so it turns out he had to go pick up a load of cocaine. They had a, a shipment of cocaine that was coming in. She didn't know that. But here's the thing. And this is not in the documentary. That apartment was on the fifth floor of the Champ- Champlain Tower South. Whoa. Yeah. So, and, and true to form, if you were building a luxury condo in the late 70s, early 80s, your market in no small part would have been to drug smugglers. And so that that's the apartment that they're hanging out. I, I And I realized when, when I was in Los Angeles delivering the series to Netflix and, and the tragedy happened in Surfside, I was like, Champlain Tower South. That sounds familiar to me. And we looked it up and that's where, yeah, that's where, that was his love nest, his Miami, Peggy's Miami Beach love nest that he took uh, Alexia to. Damn, it all comes full circle. It's crazy, just crazy. It's... It- it's such a wealth of stories in that area that you would almost think that some of it's fabricated, but uh, <laughs> if anything, it's underreported. <laughs> Listen, Florida is the grift that keeps on grifting. I mean, it's just, it's a never, and it's just but like- But you love it. That's one of the things that I love about you. Like, when you talk about it, there's like a, a twinkle in your eye. <laughs> 
you know, you know it's funny. So a, a buddy of mine, Jim DeFeedy, who's in the uh, who's in the documentary, he's the journalist that we interview. He's the only guy that really covered these guys in an extensive way. Um, he didn't write a book about it, but he wrote like feature cover stories for the Miami New Times, and it was the only way these guys. To this day, there's not a book that you can go out and get to learn anything about these guys. Um, and so uh, he said to me, you know, we're, um, listen, I'm always trying to push for accountability for transparency for better government always trying to encourage people to vote better uh, it's an uphill battle that's why in Florida of today is the America of tomorrow uh, but the the reality is 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 that um, I want there to be a better Florida I want to leave behind a better Florida than the one I was born in I don't even know if Florida is going to be intact <laughs> you know if it's going to be the same geological area than the one I was born in by the time I die but the the um the reality is is that I remember Jim telling me one day cuz he's a local he's a political reporter especially he says Billy just remember the worse people they elect the better it is for our business <laughs> For your business, yeah, yeah, because it like, right. and I'm like, what a shitty way of life. It's true. But, I think yeah. you're good. <laughs> I think you're good. You're a guy who's sitting on a diamond mine that's a mile <laughs> long. Like, I don't think you have to worry. You have a hammer and a chisel. Like, how much work can you do? There's so many stories. I don't think that's an issue. No, but do you think it's issue. possible that the influx of people from New York that just wanted to get the fuck out of New York and move to Florida and move to a lot of other places from a lot of other places? Do you think in any way that might benefit Florida? No. <laughs> no. Short answer. No. There's. I mean, there's more. Is it detrimental? Yeah, and listen. New Yorkers were never going to treat it as anything more than the sixth borough. I mean, that's just how they they look. Like you said, you know, come for the fuckery, right? You know, stay for the tax haven. You know, stay stay for stay for no no state income tax. Well, and the weather. I mean, it's hurricane season right now. I told you, right. it's, it's flooding in the sun right now. I mean, mm -hmm. like the weather. You know. Um, yeah, but it's still in the winter time. It doesn't snow. Well, if you true. grow up on the East Coast, yeah. that is the, that's the thing is that every winter for four months it sucks. And I'll tell you, I actually like August in Miami better than I like August in New York, for example. Right. I actually, I do. I like that tropical. Yeah, it's nice. I like that. Yeah, I like the tropical depression. The ocean's there. You get a yeah. breeze. I like the rain. I actually like, I like that. It's it, cleansing. Direct hit by, yeah. You know what? <laughs> Honestly, as they all start moving in, I get a little bit of that Travis Bickle in the back of my head. You know, someday rain's going to come. Wash all the scum away. You know, like I get a little <laughs> bit, of, a little bit of that. That's what's going to happen. One hurricane. And these people are going to head head for the hills. You think so? Oh, no doubt. But the reality, listen, they want to be there for six months in a day or however long you have to be there to establish residency and not pay state income tax. That's what it, that's why OJ came there. That's why the Enron executives, you know, came there. You can't take someone's house. There's, you know, you, you, you know like that. That's what it is. It's that kind of haven. You know, I'm always stunned that people move into those high rises because I'm like, if you are in a hurricane and you're experiencing, you know. 100 plus mile an hour winds. I would imagine the 81st floor is the last place I'd want to be. I'm going to say something that like, oh, I'm going to get shit for this. <laughs> Joe's like, oh, they're, they're not going to give me shit for something I say this pod. <laughs> 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 they probably will too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's going to happen again. Another building's going to fall. You think so? It's it's inevitable. Are there, are there some buildings that are suspect? Not already? only not only are there buildings that are old buildings that are suspect that are not being well maintained that have like I said water coming at them from literally everywhere, um, but the listen we have like a 
We have a third world government and, a f and fourth world infrastructure in Miami. I saw a video of a guy taking a boat under one of your bridges and he was filming the underside of the bridge showing all the parts of the concrete that are collapsing and he's like I literally am fucking terrified getting under this bridge right now. I mean imagine how you feel driving over it. You don't even know. I, I will tell you, yeah. you know, we had a I think something like three or four of oh fuck. I wish I could remember this. It's like three or four of the deadliest <clears throat> infrastructure like failures and collapses in the United States in the last 10 years have happened in Miami-Dade County. Jesus. One county in the entire country has had the majority of deadly infrastructure failures and, 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 and building collapses. We had a bridge that they were stress testing. This like, that collapse. They had traffic open underneath it while they were stress testing this brand new bridge. It's called the FIU Bridge Collapse. This very politically connected contractor did it. Fucking thing collapsed, killed six people. Oh, Jesus. One construction worker and five people who were just at a red light in their car sitting under this bridge. I will tell you now, that happened a few years ago. To this there day, is. boom. To this day, I don't like to stop under like overpasses or bridges in Miami. Look at that guy. How that, lucky that's a get? lucky, yeah. That's one, can you imagine? That's the luckiest guy. Jesus the luckiest Christ. driver that day and did they find out what I mean if it's a brand new yeah. bridge It's just built shitty there was uh, design flaws, but they knew a week ahead. There were cracks in the foundation There's emails in photographs voice messages about it And so they, they knew that it was that it, it was fundamentally flawed But then the, the kicker is that they're doing a stress test on the bridge Nobody shut down Traffic and this is a major thoroughfare. It goes by Florida National University. Huge How do they do public a school. Test? Is it like weight? I don't know. I don't. They, but they're like they're they're pulling on core. You know oh. they're on core. And needless and to say, in the, if someone said to you, "Hey Joe, we're doing a stress test. You want to stand under the bridge?" You'd be like, "No, no, th you know, just yeah. yeah, just like ivermectin. Just say nay." Is what I would, oh, yeah, see what I did there? But Netflix publicist is like Billy. Shut the fuck up. So anyway, no, but no, but but. Six people crushed to death. Oh. Nobody held responsible. Nobody held accountable. How? Why? Be why? Because the mayor, uh, Carlos Jimenez, now Congressman Carlos Jimenez, his wife's cousin, owns the company that's the contractor. It employed both of his sons at various oh. times. He, Marco Rubio is a major... Uh, 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 benefactor, uh, or I should say beneficiary, uh, Rick Scott. What happened was while bodies were still trapped in the rubble, you had Marco Rubio, the senator from the state of Florida, working as their public crisis manager, like doing press saying like, this is a good company. These are good, you know, good God fearing Republicans. And, and uh, our mayor, our county mayor at the time, Carlos Menes, calling who was on a junket in Hong Kong, calling in saying it couldn't have been MCM, it couldn't have been these people. These people just got a $70 million contract at the Miami International Airport, a new one. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, they just, they, they're, they're fixing. So no punishment. The bridges you're talking about, yeah. they have contracts for the water and sewer in Miami-Dade to work on some of those bridges that, that the guy was, that w w was concerned about. If you watch the video, see if you can find a video of uh, eroding Miami Bridge. It's so bad. When yep. this guy's going under it, you're seeing like holes in the concrete. He's like, look at this shit. Look at this shit. Yeah. 
But that's that's all over the place. And people after Champlain Towers, like people started sending me shit like their, uh, you know, their underground. That's the thing. In certain developments, particularly on the beach, you have a finite amount of real estate. So one of the best designs to maximize the property is to build the parking structure underneath the building, basically. We don't, well, you of can't, you, but you can't go underground because there's no, you know, we don't have an underground. Right. We're basically, you know, two feet above sea level, barely. So they build these parking structures. They build these uh, pool kind of platforms where the mm-hmm. pool is. And then you have buildings on top of that that are being somewhat supported by the, by these tenuous structures. Somewhat but, is a good word. And a lot of the new construction, which technologically speaking and design speaking, we are better at it. But the problem is, is that when you have third world government and fourth world infrastructure there's corner cutting and it's who's my cousin or who's my uncle and it's really that bad in terms of the government down there it's really that bad um if people think i'm being hyperbolic then why are buildings collapsing yeah they're not really collapsing like that anywhere else nothing bridges are we had a we had someone die in a ferry accident their car rolled off drove off like a ferry and died. Where? What first world country does shit like that happen in? It happens in. You know what they say? Uh, the great thing about Miami is it's so close to the United States. You know. Well, that is. It is like a foreign country. I mean, yeah. it is. But when you say that Miami is like the rest of the United States in the future, mm. like what else do you mean other than the problem with climate control and mm. like what? Well, first and foremost, I mean the the separation between the haves and the have-nots. I mean, Miami has maybe second only to the San Francisco metro area. It has one of, it is uh, uh, one of the greatest income and wealth gaps in the country. Um, We'll see swamp favelas in our lifetime. You know, we'll see people who are in the service trade in Miami but can't afford the cost of living. In fact, the United Way has an Alice report where they say 60%, nearly 60%, like 59% and change of Miami-Dade County residents cannot afford to live in Miami-Dade County. And most of those people have at least one job. So these are not, this is the working poor. People with one, two, three, four jobs who cannot afford the cost of living, the education, the transportation in Miami-Dade. So that's the first thing, is that that is, is the wealth gap and the income gap. And that is going to become ubiquitous, I think, nationwide. Certainly the challenges of, of sea level rise uh, and climate change, um, and climate change gentrification. Um, I think also, though, the way the government works, this sort of, the kleptocracy. It used to be a narco-kleptocracy, like Venezuela. Now it's just a kleptocracy, mm. um, where a group of very rich, very influential, private business people uh, essentially run cronies into, and that's gonna be, that's, and all of this is being exacerbated by the pandemic, because you got a bunch of people sitting at school board meetings going, why the fuck do I need to put up with this shit? I'm just here to try to help kids. Like, well, I don't need to put up with this. Fuck this. Who's going to take their place? The crazy people yelling <laughs> at the microphone at them are going to become the next school board mm, members. And this is right. like, this is what we've seen in Florida. It's this, and, and it's, it's, a, it's a plan to privatize, subsidize, brutalize. So first you privatize bridges, industries, highways, schools with charter schools and private schools. You subsidize them with tax dollars. And where I say brutalize, I mean that because they're private entities, they may not be subject to the 
sunshine laws, public records laws, accountability and and transparency that a public institution is supposed to to follow. So you don't even know. You know we have charter school, we're like one of the number char, number one charter school um, states in the country. We're also the number one chart uh, place for closing down charter schools. I mean, they hire child molesters. They hire. They have no standards. They have no. You know, and they're all. We have a guy who sits in the Florida legislature on the education committee. His day job. He works for the largest charter school company in the state of Florida. So, what do you think he's doing about public education? And he's misappropriating our tax dollars into into his bosses. Hands. That's literally what he's doing every legislative session in my and we let this happen. The mayor of Miami, he is the mayor. He has two private sector jobs, dude. What? Yes, this is le- it's unethical, <coughs> but it's legal. It's fun. This is what this is what this is what legislators. While he's the mayor, he's allowed to keep two private sector jobs. One, one of which, uh, it is a private equity firm, uh, for whom a lot of the client they have a. Yeah, and, uh, and the other one, he's a, he's a law firm. He's a lobbyist, effectively, with a major cryptocurrency, digital asset, and 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 uh, blockchain uh, practice, which is where a lot of the money is coming from. Into the new, the new, the new, new rich uh, money is coming from in Miami. So he has two private sector jobs, working for the richest people in town, while he's the mayor of one of the poorest cities in America. And here's the here's the rub. Because he's an attorney, he claims that his client list is privileged. It's attorney-client privilege, which means that he has a secret client list, which there could be, it could be a minefield of conflicts of interest with his public position as mayor, but we're not allowed to know what they are. Just trust me, there's no conflicts. And of course there's conflicts because I see him go out every day as a cheerleader for some of the lobbying, for some of the richest, most powerful people in town. Selling out his constituents at the at the expense of his constituents. The guys raised four million dollars to run for re-election unopposed in a city of four hundred and fifty thousand people. What does he need with four? Yeah, four million. Yeah, and that's where his power lies. By the way, by charter he doesn't really have a lot of power. Um, Mayor Postalita, uh, Francis Suarez, he doesn't have a lot of power. But he. What's postalita mean? Uh, no, my Cuban friends will know what that means. It's like a poser, oh. a faker, oh. a postcard. It's like yeah, a guy who gives the veneer of one thing but is actually another one. He is actually he's a con man, is what he is. But that's what Miami is. He's he's a by charter he's a a, a mascot in the head coach's office with his feet on the desk but where he yields the influence and the power is through that money is through his private sector his fundraising and his private sector gigs that's where he can start to uh, to influence what's happening in town and it is not for the better it is not it has been terribly damaging to the people of that city and that county and that's our biggest people say well, how do you fix it v- vote for vote better just vote better is there any bright lights on the horizon in that whole area? I mean, is any of this like newfound capital, newfound people immigrating? I won't say immigrating to Miami, moving to Miami. Is, is any of it beneficial? None of us like taxes, but we all, we pay them. We do our part. Um, it, 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 theoretically, it's supposed to help our community. It's supposed to, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> uplift the country. Um, if you're moving to a place because ultimately you want to avoid paying taxes, you're not necessarily going to have the interest of community in mind. 
So we're not necessarily seeing people who are interested in investing in Miami in a way that's going to be productive for the people there now. What it's going to do is it's going to make it more expensive for the people who live there. They're, you know, they're going to have to move away. Um, I don't know who is going to wind up being, again, that's why I say we wind up with swamp favelas, you know, mm. tent, tent cities and things where people are stealing real, uh, stealing electricity and water and uh, and I'm already seeing it downtown Miami. It, you know, everybody complains about L.A. and San, same thing in Miami under the overpasses, the tent cities. We have entire blocks and stretches in and around downtown Miami of, of tent cities. And the homeless homelessness problem is a is a serious, serious problem. Um, basically, what they're starting to do is just kind of like do sweeps. There's no place to really put them. Well, tent, necessarily, tent cities are a problem in every single city. hundred percent. hundred percent. Even in Hawaii. It's a strange thing when you think about that this didn't exist a decade ago at all, and now it's overrunning cities. I think that- I think they I think they existed. I think they were probably in they, there wasn't as many people, and they weren't necessarily in, in as high profile. I can't remember but- any tents in California more than a decade ago. If you go back two decades ago, I definitely can't remember them. I don't I don't think they existed. I don't know, I don't think what happened, but my my concern is that no one seems to have a fix for it. I mean, Austin has done a good job recently of getting them off of some of the major cities and then moving them into hotels, and they've purchased hotels and motels for these folks. But, I mean, when you're dealing with a place like Austin, you're only dealing with a million people and a couple thousand homeless people. When you're dealing with something like Miami or Los Angeles or San Francisco, you're dealing with staggering numbers. I don't think anybody's fixed it. And there's very little incentives to create affordable housing or to do what you're you know what they've done here, which is yeah. to buy up properties and and start to to provide housing for people. There's just there's very little incentive for it. Listen, we're we're a community with a um with a transient population and a lack of institutional memory. And so the the and the pandemic is actually remarkably the pandemic helped Miami skip a bust cycle. We we you know we exist in these booms and bust cycles. Mm-hmm. We were on the the you know real estate value you know, property values. We were on a downturn. Shit was going to collapse probably in 2020 or 2021. The pandemic saved Miami. It spared us that that real heavy bus cycle. Instead, houses are more expensive than they ever were before. Demand is through the roof. It just makes it unaffordable, of course, for for any of us who you know who already live there. But like, it somehow spared us. Amazingly, this tragedy has spared you know has been like a boom for when, Florida. When you get caught in a hurricane, like mm-hmm. if you know a hurricane's coming, where do you go? Do you just, do you fly out of town a it, week in advance? Like, what do you do? It depends on the course of the storm. On um, the last big one for us, I think it was Hurricane Irma. What was that back in like twenty seventeen? I went to Nashville. It seemed far. It seemed far enough out of the. Did it work? Out of the cone. It were. We had a little rain at the end, but it was just like it was just rain. Did you get a hotel room. Uh, got an Airbnb. Ralphie May. Uh, oh, may he Ralphie. rest in peace, Ralphie. Um, he was just he, was, he he had this cold. He just couldn't kick. That's what he told me when I was there. Um, he wanted me to stay with his house in in his house. He's like, come bring the whole family. So this was before he was right when he was dying. This was like weeks, maybe weeks before. Oh. And so he says, come and stay at my house. I think he had like empty nest. And he's like, I got this great big house and just come. I'm like, I'm not going to put you out. I'm like, bring, you know, like take over his house. Like, you know, and he, I'm, and he's, but he was just like, so, he was like, so, so, and he's like, well, you got to come out to my show. He did like a weekly thing, like on a weekday, like a Tuesday at this, at the comedy club there. Oh God, I wish I could remember what it was called. Zanies. Zanies. 
Yeah. It's like a weekday thing. Like off night, right? Yeah. Fucking packed for him. Right? Yeah. He just comes and packed and he um he sits up there for like three hours. Like he's just riffing and do and like and he, there was a lot of hurricane refugees there, so he was like work, you know, doing crowd work with the I mean, it was just buying people drinks. It was just like it was amazing. And you could tell he was like, he had sniffle, like there was something not 100, but he was hilarious. And he was hilarious for like three fucking hours. He was hilarious. And then I go back stage afterwards and, and um, he was like, come out with me. Come out with me. Um, we're going out. We're going out. And I'm like, how are you feeling? He's like, I'm not feeling great, but we're going out. And um, I was like, my girl was like, he doesn't seem like, I don't want you to catch something, you know, like get a cold and... and I was like, all right, I can't make up. But we had a, we had like a brunch date for Sunday. We're like, let's have brunch. She's like, oh, I know this place. We got to go have brunch at this place on Sunday. So let's do it. So he goes out. He calls me up the next. He goes, I'm not feeling brunch. I'm not feeling well. And uh, I said, um, you know, and then um, we left and I was on a plane and I was landing on my phone was off. I turned the, the, my phone on a couple weeks, you know, a few weeks later, whenever it was. And he was gone, and I just sat on the plane crying uh, on, uh, on the tarmac at uh, MIA. And I just was like, and I regretted not going out. <laughs> mm. I regretted not going out with him that night. It would have been worth getting a little cold or whatever the fuck it was. Um, but, uh, you know, yeah. Um, or, or the uh, the Corogan, the Corogan virus. Uh, <laughs> Give it back to Florida, baby. Give it back to Florida. <laughs> I'll, t- I'll go right to Orlando. Fuck him in Central Florida. <laughs> I wonder where I got it. You know, I'm do- the problem is I'm doing these arena shows, so I'm in the round. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. and I get off stage, and I've got to go through thousands of people <sighs> screaming at me and high fiving. So as I'm, I'm well, at least in wearing the masks. center of this. Oh no, I was just kidding. You're joking. <laughs> there's none of that. And no, then we were drunk, and then we stayed out late. There's a lot of a lot of factors. That yeah, led to pandemic drinking. That. So I, the only place I pandemic drink. Uh, now the, the, uh, there's this place. Oh man, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna blow my spot. But there's this place. It's outside. It's like, but it's like a it's it's a classic Keys kind of mm-hmm. kind of bar. It's entirely there is no inside. It's entirely outside, and it's just like it's the perfect. Like I've only had meetings. Like I had meetings there during the pandemic. It was like the perfect spot to go and uh, to go because you get you get reckless. You get yeah. irresponsible. You sure. you don't make. Nobody says, oh, I'm going to have whiskey and make responsible decisions. Like, right. that's not. So, like, especially now, it's just like, you know. Avoid crowds. Yeah. Right. Or, or avoid into, like, I just try to, especially if you're going to drink. Yeah. It's, there's uh, there is some value in getting it, though, and getting over it. Because, obviously, the natural immunity is pretty substantial. Like, if you can get over it. Catch COVID and survive and get over it. I'm not advocating that anybody do that, but it's not the chicken pox. Say that, (laughs) but but I just got over it. It wasn't that bad with good treatment, like for me. And you're right. Your experience is, you know, is your experience, and and no one can begrudge you that. And I said, like, if your doctor has shit to throw at it, fucking throw at it. Like, absolutely. Your doctor says, listen, take this as prescribed, and it will help these symptoms or it'll help the virus. Absolutely. My fear is that these variants are going to continue to get more and more aggressive, and we're going to be dealing with something completely different three years from now, two years from now, and more of them can happen. And you know, like you know, I had a meeting once with the CDC in Galveston 
uh, we did a show down there, and me and Duncan were talking to this guy, and we were talking essentially about bioweapons, about someone making a disease. And he said, that's a concern. He said, but that's not my concern. He goes, my concern is nature. My concern is that something jumps from livestock to human beings and just runs right through us. And he goes, and it's going to happen. And then, but, then, but then the misinformation. You know, the Russians have been working on anti-vax yeah. uh, stuff for decades because it's, because it's bipartisan. It's bipar- It's very effective. When you say the Russians have been working on Absolutely. anti-vax stuff, you mean like anti-vax information exactly. propaganda Absolutely. on in- yeah. the internet? Absolutely. Yeah. The influencing, you know, the, the, what, the what psyops have, and influencing kind of kind What of have campaigns. you seen that they've done? The, I, listen, it's just, it's a social media shit. That's all. They promote pages and they promote information that, that because it's bipartisan. There's, there's people who- un- They seem to promote anything that gets attention. Anything that divides Americans mm-hmm. and gets us at each yeah. other's fucking throats. Have you ever seen that? Um, there's a v- interview from 1985, 86. This is a KGB agent, and he's breaking down how you destroy America. And he's saying, you don't destroy America with weapons. He goes, you destroy it by slowly enforcing propaganda and getting the students to first of all getting them to endorse marxist principles and ideology and slowly erode their faith in government slowly erode their faith in their institutions and that they'll they'll attack it psychologically and slowly break down the country over a few years when you listen to him talk at the the end of this this discussion i mean you're like holy fuck that's exactly what happened like, did, did they engineer this? Did they engineer the collapse of our higher learning institutions? We already had two countries. We fought a whole fucking war over it with each other. We already had two countries. So it already, we were already coexisting here. So all you had to do was attack that rift. Yeah. That's all. You, that's what you had to do. I'm, uh, Florida, there's two Floridas. The, uh, the, the I-4 corridor where you were in Orlando... There's North Florida and there's South Florida. What's the difference? Well, it used to be. It's not quite true. Back when we were considered a purple state, we're a red state now. But, you know, it used to be, you know, Florida was like America's red penis with a blue foreskin that everybody wished we could circumcise. And we could just have two North Florida and South Florida. And most of the revenue generating locations are obviously south. Um, they were the, the bluer places, not so blue anymore. Um, but it was two Floridas. What Florida, we still have bars, not stars, but bars on our on our state flag. We were Miami was Jim Crow South. What do you mean by bars in your state? As in flag? stars and bars, as in the Confederate uh, flag. What I'm saying, we were a southern we were a southern you state. Mean, you have that now? Yeah, it's well what I'm saying is it's evocative. It's not directly it's not stars and bars, but I mean it does it does have what the, is the pull up the Florida flag? The desi- what I'm saying is the design is it's not. Yeah, I'm not saying it's it's the Confederate flag. But what I'm saying is it's evocative because we were a Southern state. Miami Beach had Jim Crow laws. Black people could not be in Miami Beach. That's the uh, Florida flag. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That looks remarkably like the Confederate yeah, flag. It's evocative. <laughs> Listen, it's a Southern state. What I'm saying is that's I, that's crazy. That's I did the reality. Not know that. I didn't know what I had no idea what the Florida flag looked like. No I one think really that's knows the first these. time I've seen it. Yeah, no one really knows what these. You probably figured there's, you know, 
That's, Mickey Mouse and Amanity and that's kind of crazy. Now pull up a Confederate flag. Pull up a, in comparison, Jamie. Put, it's not. It's not that. It's, it's not that close. similar. But it's. It's. It, but the point is, it's not a coincidence. That's all I'm saying. Right. You know. Uh, that's it. all I'm saying. Like it. it's evocative, and we are, people up until the '60s, even into the '70s, black people could not be in the city of Miami Beach after dark. Whoa. Unless you worked there, and if you did, you had to go to the police department and get an ID badge. They literally took your fingerprints, and you had, a, you had to be tagged. You had to have a fucking number. So Muhammad Ali could fight in Miami Beach. He could not stay in Miami Beach. Nat King Cole, Sammy Davis Jr., they could perform in Miami Beach, they could, even at the hotels, but they could not stay at the hotels. They had to go back over the causeway to Overtown, which had a vibrant, you know, if you saw the movie One Night in Miami, on they had like, it was a vibrant nightlife because you had, because you had the greatest performers in the world performing in Miami Beach and then being forced into this neighborhood uh, it, where they, they had after parties and after clubs and like, so you had this vibrant uh, culture in, in Overtown in Miami oh, wow. because of segregation, because of Jim Crow. We had a black beach in Virginia Key. Black people were not allowed on the beach in Miami Beach. We're talking about through the 60s or 70s. This is very recent history. So what I'm saying is, is that like, you know, if you have a fault line and you can just drop, you know, you can just drop, you know, like you don't have to attack it with a nuclear weapon. Right. You could just just kind of rattle it a little bit, you know, stick a wedge in there and kind of shake it. That's America. We've, we're two Americas. And so we're just, you know, people are just constantly ready to be at, <laughs> to be at each other's yeah. throats. And so it's very easy to exploit that. That world of foreign instigated propaganda and, and division is really fascinating. I had this woman on the podcast named Renee DeResta. And uh, she uh, had thoroughly researched the Internet Research Agency in Russia, which just does that. It's basically a farm that they're th all they do all day long is create pages and memes and work on these pages mm -hmm. and develop these memes that are shared amongst like QAnon supporters and 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 just a lot of crazy people and a lot of like divisive uh, ideologies online and they're they're constantly stoking the fires and she goes some of them are so clever too it's really interesting because some of these memes and she said she had to look through hundreds of thousands some of them are hilarious yeah. and they're made in Russia they're made in Russia so people can share them in America <laughs> and that these will stoke division and the funnier the better because they're more yeah. likely to go viral and people will share them if only because if only because they're funny But they did wild shit man like uh, she documented that they had a uh, Texas separatist group Sure, they organized a meeting on Facebook with a Texas separatist group across from a Muslim group so they had this Islamic group that had a uh, a meeting like a like a gathering directly across the street from this Texas sectors group like they did it on purpose where they tried to get them close to each other so they would fight it it doesn't it doesn't take that much even in Miami you just drive down the street and people just start fucking fighting with each other it's just but it's there's a there's a compassion gap in this country a compassion gap a compassion gap it, uh, okay where like you know the American values, values used to be like the golden rule, like do unto others as you'd have done to you, right? The rising tide raises all ships, to use a sea level rise metaphor. But like now, we talked about this with Screwball, like the new American values are like, fuck everybody else. Lie, cheat, and steal to get ahead for me and mine. And when you start to circle the wagons that way, you're going to 
you're going to cause trouble. I mean, like in, in Miami, it's like as simple as it's as simple as the way we drive, <laughs> you know, like we just like we, we treat each other like assholes. Like we just like, you when know, you're I in the way. Yeah, I would like. But we're this is a shared experience. You're right. not going to get anywhere any faster by cutting me off or do, like user turn signal. I'm not a psychic. Let's just play. Let's all play right. by the same rules and we'll all be cool. Why treat each other like shit? We're all we're all pretty happy here. Like let's let's just let's just chill out. I, I always say like that's that you know my bad joke is like well it's not called your Emmy or our Emmy. It's my fucking Emmy. And like that's how like I'm like why do we treat each other that way? Like why can't we just l- learn that this is a shared experience? Listen, I feel that way about you know when when people say um uh you know my driver over here today was like listen she's like the you know the uh the icus are 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 full it's like so if i get into a car accident and i need a bed she's like that does affect me so people who are getting sick affect me i don't want people to i don't want a cop a day dying in florida i don't want people to die for no fucking reason it you know did, did, did you hear that uh polio is killing one police officer a day in florida no, because it doesn't fucking happen. There's no polio anymore. It's one of the six vaccines that, you know, all your kids need in the Miami-Dade public schools. Like, if there's a way to realize that, like, th- these these states are united. We are united states. We're, we, are, we are literally all of us fighting the same battle every day f- for our families to have a better life, to hopefully, you know, w- millennials are the first generation Okay, to have it shittier than the pre of Americans to have it shittier than the previous generation. Do you really think they do? Unquestionably, they do. How so? Unquestionably, they do. There's no, there's no the 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 earning potential, the student debt, the um uh, the availability of 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 jobs, of four hundred one ks over time. Like there's it, they're they're a ten ninety nine generation. They're a freelance generation. Gone are, are the opportunities that provided for the baby boomers after the greatest generation fought a war to create the most extraordinary and robust economy in the world. I mean, it, they're, they're, they're the first generation of Americans uh, since the, the Great Depression to not have it better than the previous generation. That's a, that's a doc I've always talked about doing. <laughs> um, call it the, uh, the, the worst generation, how baby boomers fucked up America. And the slogan would be, Greatness skips a generation. That's what, it would, <laughs> that's what it would be. They had every opportunity. They had jobs. They had mortgages. They had credit. They had education, affordable educations. They had, and the millennials are just kind of like living at home. And I don't think it's because they suck. Um, I don't. I don't think that's. I don't think that's enough. I think that uh, it's not because Time Magazine called them the people of the year. Remember when there was that like mirror, you know, on the cover of Time mm. Magazine? I don't think they got full of. I think there are just fewer. Uh, 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 Opportunities systemically in, in this country for that gender for for subs and future gener and post millennials as well. I just I think that there's not the opportunity necessarily available in a in a fair system. Also, you know where where it's a real meritocracy. <laughs> it's what I always liked about about sports. You know, is that it was as close to a pure meritocracy as we get when well, you take referees out <laughs> out of the equation sometimes. But I just mean that like if you are the best. In a sport, if you are the best athlete, if you are the best conditioned and the best trained, and go, you are going to rise to the top. And you don't feel that that's the case with most businesses today? Is that what you're saying? I don't. I don't. What necessarily. do you think holds it back? What do you think prevents it from being a meritocracy? I think there's several. I think it's. I think corruption is a. You know, it's a kleptocracy. So I think corruption plays 
a very big part in that. I think I think people who are already at the top exert so much influence that it becomes harder. I mean, metaphorically speaking, if you look at Main Street America and you look at the mom and pop businesses that shut down when the big box store opens down the street, it could be as simple as that kind of image. Um, but I think it gets much more complicated. Uh, you know, when you have people who you have when you have a stacked, you're playing effectively with a with a stacked deck. Does that mean there's no such thing as successful entrepreneurism? Of course not. But I'm saying that that it's much more challenging, I think, in this economy, in this and this environment uh, than it than it ever was uh, before. When you and we say there's like a compassion gap, is that the term you used? Yeah. Like, what do you what do you mean by that, though? I mean, a lack of empathy, a lack of 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 people saying like my experiences are not necessarily your experiences the world may treat your exp life experience may be different the world may treat you differently as a result of uh, no power of your own whether it's your gender the color of your skin whatever it may be to just say like listen i don't know everything about all people all i could do is is listen and pay attention and kind of realize that oh like yeah you know the world does kind of treat me different winning the genetic lottery and being born a white man in America. Life's pretty good. You know, it's, you know, it's tough to, it's tough to complain. There are opportunities for me. There are, you know, I can be entrepreneurial and cre creative and clever and get ahead in a way that maybe other people don't necessarily have those doors uh, open to them. And just, a, just an understanding of that in and of itself, I think, makes your community better, makes your family better, ma uh, makes people safer and, and healthier. And I just like, and, and how, how is that related to a compassion gap? It's having compassion for other people. It's saying that I'm going to acknowledge that you, um, that, by the way, some people can't even acknowledge when people are going through the same experiences that they're going through. You know, like there, there are some, uh, what you, there, there are some immigrants who are anti-immigration. We have that in Miami who like, who say like they don't see them, their experiences uh, in the experiences of of Central Americans, for example, we have a lot. We 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 have that in Miami. It's very profound. The Cuban exile experience is very uh, is is not very different, but like there's a lack, there's a compassion gap when they see people suffering in Central America, trying to escape, you know, oppression and crime uh, and corruption and close the borders. And it's like I get it. Uh, th there are concerns about the borders, but like we can also at least say that. Wait a second. These people have suffered. You've suffered. America provided, you know, the, uh, the people of your country with exile, with opportunity, with freedom. Everybody wants a piece of that. And who can who can blame them? So at least we could say, like, well, uh, well, how do you say close the door behind me? That's a compassion gap. Right. Okay, That's that a compassion gap. When you, when you say this compassion gap, when you talk about this, do you, do you think that there's something that we can do to uh, mitigate this? Is there... I mean, obviously, you've thought about this. Yeah. If you've you've discussed it and you think it's one of our main problems, do you think there's something that we can do collectively? I think we can be better informed. I think we can we can you know listen. I I, I was talking about be this. better informed about what about every about other people's experiences about it's part of the reason why I'm a I'm a documentarian. You know, um, I tell stories about a lot of different people about uh, you know, gringos, Cuban Americans, African Americans. And, and I, for me, they're all Miamians, you know, it's like you give people an opportunity to tell their story or give them a platform to share. I think it makes us, I think watching documentaries makes us more sympathetic mm -hmm. uh, and compassionate. No, I think um, so. Yeah. I, I absolutely do. Because you're, you're learning about shit that you would never would have otherwise. Yeah, and people. people. Yeah, you never would have. You know, we were talking about, we were talking about that here. I, I think that, you know, a lot of people give you a lot of shit for <clears> what you say. I don't think they give you a lot of credit for what you don't say. And what you do on this show more than talk is listen. 
And I think that that's, I'm different when I'm on this side of the mic or the camera than when I'm interviewing somebody, yeah. which is what I do for a living. I, intellectual curiosity is my business. You know, it's, it's what keeps us, it's what keeps you going. You know, like wanting to meet interesting people and learn different shit. And, and you know, like I said, I'm, I'm a natural skeptic, so I'm always asking questions, but I am pro fact. And I think the fact is that that people look at other people in the world and just I, either they don't like them because they're the same. They don't like them because they are different. And I just I feel like there there's a way to say, like, it's cool if they're different. But like, why can't we uh, why can't we just uh, uh, not? Why can't we just not hate because of that? I think we need to smoke now. I need to. I yeah, need to, I'm trying to figure out where you're going. With I need this. to you're write. In this weird I need to place. I need to write sober and and edit stoned. Is what <laughs> I, I need to. The Carlin approach. I I there's there's things that I want to say that I'm not that I'm not saying for a very specific reason, but I I want to. Um, I think that when we cut off. When we cut off what it is that we teach our children or what it is that they can learn. And uh, I think that that is very damaging. When we cut it off? Yeah. What do you mean? Well, I think when people say that they don't want kids to learn about racism or they don't want their kids to learn about the history of, of this country for all, its, for all its flaws. You know, this was an experiment in democracy and it's, and it's had varying degrees of success I think through the years, but I are think are you talking about like critical race theory? That is, that is one of the about? that is one of the things that I'm talking about. Yeah. And what do you think about critical race theory? First of all, I think critical race theory is not a thing that's taught or should be taught per se in elementary school. That's not that's not a thing. I think what people have done is they've applied that to all things that they don't want their kids. But it is taught, taught in some elementary schools. Not as critical race theory. There are elements of it that are present in terms of teaching compassion, teaching yeah. diversity, teaching that, that they're, uh, that this was a... I think what people are concerned about is teaching children that they're inherently racist, they're inherently biased, instead of teaching people love and compassion. So their fear is that you're putting people in this position when they're very young, where they already feel guilty. They feel like they did something wrong and that they're responsible for things that they have no say in whatsoever especially young children, and that maybe there's a better approach to it. They're also worried about grifters. They're also worried about people that latch on to these socially conscious, socially progressive movements that have good intentions overall, but yet these people are using these platforms for their own personal gain and profit, which of there are quite a few people like that, and there's quite a few movements like that, and there's quite a few authors that have written books that have capitalized on these movements in this very personally profitable way, and you can see what they're doing. They're grifters. They would have found something else, but they found critical race theory, and it's a very complicated and divisive conversation to have in 2021 but that happens with everything there's always going to be opportunists and grifters even what especially in pure movements right because those are the places are that you, you can't exploit with this infecting the way their children get educated and that they're indoctrinated into these philosophies these ideas that they think are ideologies rigid ideologies that can't be debated or discussed because if you disagree with them then you're a racist you're a bad person even if you if you're not 
if you just think like, hey, I don't think that this is something that we should be teaching children that they're inherently biased and racist. But I don't think that's what children are being teaching. You can have that conversation. You can have that conversation in in college, and you should be able to freely debate sure. those those kinds of issues. But I think to but I think what people what you're saying is it's not just grifters, but there's people on the side so, on the side of the issue who don't want to teach racism, who don't want to teach that there is that there are uh, institutionally. Uh, places in this country where people who don't look and sound like you are simply treated different I just think that that's a reality for a lot of people And I don't think there's any reason to to not tell a kid like but they're not different from you They're you know, they're people who uh, are who may have some different experiences But want the same things as you might have the same hopes and dreams as you and th- I mean That's what that's what we should be teaching kids is yeah, that I like, think we're looking at it through different filters But I think ultimately we have the same perspective on it and that there is a reality of racism and there's also a reality and there's there's you have an ability to mold children and you can do it in a positive way and you can teach children and but my my concern is that teaching children that they're already guilty is a very dangerous step but teaching children that compassion is incredibly valuable and that we are all the same ultimately and that the differences are our strengths and that they're fascinating and they're amazing and that the fact that one of the great things about this country is like you you can't really point out an american because we're everything we really are everything it is one of the great experiments in immigration yeah, the census certainly proves that yeah yeah when we, the, the browning of, of america and the tanning of america it's fabulous and and but i think that <laughs> here's the thing is that yes we 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 want the same thing but i i don't know that i mean kids could feel guilty about things but i don't know that they're being taught to <laughs> taught to feel listen we are ultimately two white guys having this conversation we're about ultimately about racism, not children you know? either we're uh, not in classes right and the problem is i've seen videos of people have leaked out of classes where teachers are teaching these things to children that they're responsible for the sins of their ancestors and that this is something that's inherently a part of who they are and i think there's a way to teach the positive aspects of what we're talking about there's a way to teach compassion there's a way to teach uh, open-mindedness and this sort of understanding of the strength of the fact that we're all so different and unique. I think those anecdotal examples, though, it's kind of why I feel guilty sometimes when I share, you know, viral videos of fuckery, you know, mm-hmm. in Florida. It's like some of these things are just anomalies, you know what I mean? They're just, but the, because, thanks to the ubiquity of <laughs> your cell phones and we can kind of take this. I don't think, I don't know that crazier shit's happening now so much as it is we're all more... Right. Aware, you know, right. aware of it, and we I don't know. Of it. Uh, right, and I don't know that that's healthy <laughs> per uh, per se. Um, it's I I appreciate the transparency, and I like having the information. But I I think that when you have to, to use to borrow your term, grifters who are exploiting yeah. an opportunity, um, it's good to catch them. But I think then it it provides ammunition to vilify an entire area of study or an entire movement. I mean, it's it's kind of what you know what you were saying about some of the treatments, mm-hmm. uh, the viable. Uh, treatments for for uh, uh, COVID nineteen. I think it's the same thing. It's like you have this in, and again, I don't think there's a bunch of people going out to the, you know, to the uh, uh, horse feed shop or whatever. Get, I don't. I think that happened like one. You know what I mean? Like it's one one dude. You know, but like it becomes the go to example. It's kind of the same thing here. It's like there's one person abusing. Uh, the, abusing their authority or their platform as an educator, which I think that there's probably more than one person doing that in you know in, a, in myriad ways. But I'm saying I don't think that that is 
necessarily uh, a, a, uh, a, a fair cross section of how things are being taught and applied. I, I went to, I was a, I'm a product of Miami Dade County Public Schools, graduate of the University of Miami. I'm basically a functioning illiterate, let's be honest about it. Um, but uh, the reality is like I, I, w- I was taught pretty well, all things concerned. I don't think I came from a broken system. I don't know what the hell is going on right, right, right now in the public school system. I know a lot of people are yelling and screaming about masks, which has nothing to do with, you know, the education of their children. I know a lot of people are, you know, are, are, are pulling their kids out of school and going to private schools and charter schools, which is only going to help, you know, expedite the collapse of the, of the public school system, which I think is a bummer because, like I said, I'm a product of it. I'm, I'm, I'm a believer uh, in it. Well, it's um, certainly massively underfunded. And there's a there's a real problem in this country when we don't value one of the most important things that a child ever encounters, which is their education. We don't value it. We don't value it to the point where we don't want a, a radical change of it. One of the things that we realized through this pandemic when they started introducing these stimulus packages and start started uh, propping up corporations and boosting them to the tune of you know untold fucking billions of dollars is that they have the ability to allocate resources in a way that benefits corporations, but they don't seem to be able to do that to disenfranchised communities. They don't seem to be able to do that to places that have been historically poor and historically, you know, you know, talk about these people that have experienced red line laws and people that, you know, are still, they have the echoes of Jim Crow still in their community where they they still have the same poor neighborhoods, same crime ridden neighborhoods, and no one's done anything to fix it. Well, remember when you, when you take from the poor and give to the rich, that's capitalism. When you take from the rich and give to the poor, that's socialism, remember? Yeah, but it's, <laughs> it's also It has a stigma. Social- what I'm saying is that's- I understand. And that, I learned that from a meme, by the way. Yeah. So I learned that from a- Probably a Russian, probably a Russian meme. <laughs> no, but I, I, you're, you're right. I and mean, we, we had these Liberty City um, burned in 1980 after um, a group of white and Hispanic police officers beat a black insurance salesman on a motorcycle to death. And they moved the, it was such a hot button issue, it happened in December of 79, Arthur McDuffie was his name. It, ha, it was such a hot button issue, they moved, they changed the venue from Dade, Miami-Dade County to Tampa, and an all-white jury acquitted the police officers. And Miami had what is to this day one of the worst uh, uh, riots in the history of this country. Did billions of dollars in damage, I think 18 people died, and there are blocks, entire blocks to this day in Liberty City that have never been redeveloped. This is from 1980. You know, that just like buildings that had burned down and just never, never redeveloped. Businesses, ne- you know, never came back and places to this day look like that. You're absolutely right. Yeah, it's, it's a major problem in this country that it never gets addressed. And when, you know, they talk about rebuilding places overseas and, and nation building, like the amount of allocation of resources that have gone to Iraq and Afghanistan. Just think about that. Think about what could have been done in the United States. Like when you heard about Halliburton getting these no-bid contracts for untold billions of dollars to, to do work in Iraq and Afghanistan, per, that, particularly Iraq. Well, listen, I mean, that's who, 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 won, who won the war, the, uh, the military contractors and the Taliban. That's who, yeah. won, that's who won the war. I mean, but, like, but at least it's over. I could say that uh, for, for the time being. Um, but I, I think that... Um, <laughs> Jesus, how the fuck did we? <laughs> I don't know. What do we like, ever? Well, we always did. we started with iguanas. <laughs> this is where we went, frozen and deep just, and thought out um, iguanas. Dude, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have nightmares. I try not to think about them. I'm gonna have uh, I'm gonna have nightmares uh, about them tonight. But um, you should start eating them. 
I'd love to. I, I I heard what you heard. I heard that they're really. I heard that they're really delicious. Yeah, apparently they taste good. Yeah, I might open like a whole iguana restaurant. Do you live in near that, like a canal or anything? I in Miami, you never live far from a canal. Yeah, get a pellet yeah. gun. They're everywhere, dude. They're they're everywhere. Yeah, and they, they claw and they claw and they. Holy shit! Well, <laughs> you know, it's it's always we we, we elect some of them. Yeah, um, uh... but you know that's that's what I wanted to say. Like. Because you make an exceptionally good point, which is what I was getting. When you say the, why the Florida of today or the Miami of today is the America of tomorrow, it's just like when I hear, and I hear a lot of this in Miami, um, it, it's, it's a lot of this propaganda which, which helps to swing, swing the county and swing the state. You know, there is no, there is no communist threat to the United States. The greatest threat to, to capitalism, for example, is cronyism. That is the greatest threat. That corruption is what taints the system. That's the pro- I see that. I see that in the bridge collapse. Why isn't anybody in trouble? Right. It's this. It's the friend. They call it the friends and family program. You know, friends yeah. and family plan in Miami, and we have that everywhere, and that manifests itself to the tunes to the tune of trillions of dollars in in war. That's the greatest threat. Is the kleptocracy? That's the greatest threat. There's no communist threat. We are. Oh, this is always going to be. This is always going to be a democracy. It's always going to be ca- uh, a capital. Well, I hope it's going to be a democracy. But capitalism will is is not threatened by communism or socialism. Capitalism is threatened by cronyism. That's the threat because it perverts what capitalism. That what exactly we're talking about. The cream rises to the top. Mm-hmm. You work hard, you get ahead. Right. This generation will have it better than their parents did. That's being perverted by toxic it's crony capitalism and then it's kleptocracy and then we're just fucked and then you're just either on the inside of it or you're on the on the outside of it right so how do we get out of that i think we vote better we vote better <laughs> yeah the problem is who wants to the, run for office right that's, that's the problem, the problem. Like, where are these where are these great choices when yeah. the choices to men who are elderly which is apparently all we have available in this country <laughs> <laughs> old white men still run the show I mean, it's really kind of crazy, right? And even one of them was an outsider. The, the, our outsider was Trump, this yeah. old white man who was going up against an insider and Joe Biden, who's an old white man. I often say the Democrats never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. Oh, uh, um, well, but, that's the case in this yeah. one. But the, but the reality is, is they, they, the Democrats, there are left wing, there are extremists in the Democrat Party. They have no power. They might be popular on social media. They might be very loud. They might even have a few good ideas. They have no power in the party. They aren't passing. You talking like, about like the squad, like yeah, those the, type of folks? Anyway, Bernie Sanders, for that matter, could be mm-hmm. AOC, could be Bernie Sanders, could be the, the, uh, Elizabeth Warren. They have no real power in the party. Okay, you don't see Louis Farrakhan speaking at the Democratic National Convention. The Democrats have time and again, even in the in in, in the 2016 election which was clearly the outsider election, to your point. Clearly the Republicans were like, we're flushing the toilet on the Tea Party, we're flushing the toilet on the Bush political crime family in China, we're done with Jeb, we're done with Marco, we're done with Ted Cruz, we're done, we want this outsider. Uh, Democrats didn't quite read the room. <laughs> they, they nominated probably, uh, uh, I, would, I wouldn't even call her a centrist, She's, I would say Hillary Clinton was right of center, okay? And it's like, you know, it's like when the coach goes, uh, you know, um, goes for the two point conversion. If they make it, the coach is a genius. If they fuck it up, 
he gets second guessed, you know, for the rest of his well, life. People ask him about that play. They, the the likability factor. She's a very unlikable person. They, she was the most. She was one of the most qualified people to run for that office in my lifetime. Second only to. Actually, no, not even second to. I think Al Gore would come in. Would come in second. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a small business owner. I have to hire people all the time. You give me two CVs. You give me two resumes, and you use a sharpie and you black out the name of the of the person on top, mm-hmm. and you give me the resumes of the two major party candidates in the 2016 election, there's no doubt who I would hire blindly for that job based on the on the resumes. Right, but uh, being alone. a leader of the free world, which yes. is essentially the head of the United States of America, there's a lot involved in people's choices. And yes. a big one is trust. Trust and whether or not they like the person. And they just did not trust the whole Clinton family. They did not like Hillary Clinton. There was a lot of people that had this feeling about her that she was this icky insider, that she was a part of this whole system that had not served us. And that was corruption-laced and deeply entwined in big businesses and special interest groups. And, you know, and Donald Trump wisely positioned position himself as this guy who didn't give a fuck and was going to drain the swamp and crooked Hillary is going to get kicked out. But that corrupt system is what enabled and benefited to Donald Trump. Sure. So what I'm saying is even in a best of the worst competition, I still think she was the better uh, of, of the two options at that time. But I think you're right. The marketing was. <laughs> but again, the Republicans yeah. read the room. It was the out. I'm agreeing that it was the outsider election, that that was the spin that was necessary there. And the Democrats blew it. But they did. But same thing again in. 2020 they did not nominate a democratic socialist they did not nominate the democrats did not nominate bernie sanders they nominated again a centrist arguably for much of his career part of it anyway a right of center candidate in joe biden they 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 nominated a moderate they nominated someone who could be palatable to to larger swaths of the country than Donald Trump. And they didn't nominate anybody popular. They nominated someone who, at least on paper, was like, okay, we'll take it. Safe. Yeah, we'll yeah. take it because we don't want Donald Trump. It was basically a vote against Donald Trump. Yeah, a vote against instability and insanity and people who said only in third world authoritarian you know, totalitarian dictatorships do we listen and think about the leader of the country all the time. I want to go to work and not fucking think about what the president is, right, you don't is tweeting to. or do. No, I want to go live my life. What are you, what are your thoughts on social media and um, like banning people like Donald Trump from social media? Do you think that's ultimately dangerous? I think um, I think the private businesses need to have some autonomy. Uh, I think private businesses need to be able to make up rules. But do you no think shirt, that... no shoes, no masks, no service. Right. I think you need to have. I think you need to be able to have your your terms of service. And I think if someone breaks your rules, you say, "Get the fuck out of my business." But do you think that there's a time where something becomes so big that it no longer is simply a private business, and that it becomes a town square? It becomes almost like a utility. That you could argue that people deserve their right to be heard and this is a, a platform that has a reach that's unprecedented in American history that there's a thing that people can plug into and instantaneously reach millions and millions and millions of people the question is like did he abuse it did he did he uh, I don't want to say coerced but did, did, did he 
help instigate the attack on the Capitol on January 6th? Did, did using his Twitter account and using his social media presence ultimately endanger people? That's, that was the real question. Yes. And whether or not someone should be banned yes. from social media for expressing themselves. Yes. Well, I think that, I don't know if your suggestion is to nationalize effectively um, or, or regulate, or in this case, over-regulate or apply you know, laws and rules that apply only to the government to a private corporation. I mean, listen, you can say whatever you want on your platform, on your show. No one can tell you. And you, you can invite or not invite guests that, you know, right, that, but that I you want. I could be kicked off of YouTube. If I was on YouTube with this show, they could decide that this show is too controversial. We don't like what Joe and Billy said about COVID. Let's, we're going we're gonna to demonetize or we're going to even delete this episode. That's possible. Yes. There's forms of censorship where people don't like people discussing ideas. That's one, that's one conversation. But this is a platform like Twitter where it's, you, know, you have hundreds and hundreds of millions of users. I don't, I don't know how many, maybe billions. It's so big. You can make an argument that it's like a utility more than it is like a private company. But if YouTube did that to you, you'd go to Spotify. What I'm saying is you'd have but there's the platform. There's no thing other than Twitter like that. And then you have women like Jen Psaki, who's the press secretary for the White House, who says that if you get banned from one platform, you should be banned from all platforms, which is very convenient for them if they can get someone banned that's a critic of the United States government. But oh, I don't think that I don't think that should be the case. I think I think each platform yeah. it depends on you might use one platform differently right. than you use another. I don't think that's fair. I mean, obviously, each platform. I don't I don't think the government should impose. Uh, some sort of blanket or you let's like go oh, Twitter why why should Twitter be able to decide for for Facebook Facebook has their own yeah. their own terms and their own conditions and, and you have to follow their no I thought it rules. was a ridiculous thing for someone to say especially yeah. someone as a White House press secretary but I'm just uh, look I'm on the fence on this in a way in that I don't think I don't think it's wise to have someone who is in a great position of power who's outwardly calling for some sort of a violent movement or a violent attack and that can happen right let's let's forget about the january 6th thing and let's imagine that some senator or some politician is calling for people to aggressively assume control of a building or take control of a place like, that's a dangerous, dangerous megaphone to use, right? And in that, in that situation, I think we have to be really careful about how we allow people to use any kind of platform, right? Whether it's a social media platform or whatever the fuck it is. In that case, I think that's where your argument can, that's where there's the argument about Trump and the Capitol Hill attack. That's where it gets real squirrely with me. But other than that, I feel like the answer to bad speech is better speech. The, a the answer is robust debate. The answer is people that are intelligent, articulate, and convincing, making far better points. But not dangerous misinformation, right. or to your point, it, inc inciting, inciting violence. Inciting, inciting ins violence. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's, and, and, but I think that, again, you as the private business owner, as a restaurant owner or whatever it is, have to make a decision about that guy acting a fool at that table over there. Right. Am I going to 
am I going to put my hand on his shoulder and say, buddy, just kind of keep it down a little bit? Or am I going to pick him up and use his head to open the back door and toss him out in the alley and say, not in my place? Right. I mean, I think pro- businesses need to have some some freedom and, and ability For to sure, make their own rules. I just don't think it's as simple as a small business anymore. I think when you're dealing with something like Twitter, which okay. also Victims has, of their own success? Well, it is in a way, but I mean, they're also inconsistent. I mean, Twitter has the Taliban on. The Taliban is openly posting on Twitter. That's fucking wild. I mean, the documented atrocities are occurring right now. I mean, you can pay attention to what's happening right now in Kabul. It's not good. And they're on Twitter. Here's the thing. You walk into my restaurant. I don't like your politics. Mm-hmm. I, could, I could probably refuse you service for for any reason but the reality is if you come in and you don't act a fool in my place right it's a private bi- again you, if they come on twitter and they don't violate twitter's rules i don't like it i don't want i don't like their me- i don't follow them <laughs> you know? yeah. I, I don't like their message i don't particularly want their their message on the platform in which case i could leave the platform myself in pr- in protest for example because they're allowed but the reality is i just i block them out i don't you know they don't exist in my in my timeline. You know, but the bottom line is, is that the, the private business owner needs some autonomy, needs some ability to say, "I control this this space. This is my." And yeah. I get, I get, it's not a restaurant. I, I understand Twitter's the, not a restaurant. The problem people have is that it's enforced almost down an ideological division. It's it's like very rock solid enforced in a, a left wing manner. Well, and that right wing <laughs> people are much more likely to be banned and censored. But then I think you have to look at the nuances of this, meaning why were these, why were the people, why was each account banned? What mm-hmm. I'm saying is if you're going to incite violence, I don't really care who you're, in, who you're, right, if you're agreed. a fanatic, I don't really give a fuck if you're left or right, right or what. ban them, of course. Right, but yeah. as a proponent of free speech, which I'm sure you are, you gotta, you know that this is kind of, it's, it gets slippery when people have the ability to silence their critics or silence their uh, opposition, silence people that have differing opinions, you know, and when you're you're dealing with a small business like a restaurant, that's, uh, I understand it, but you're dealing with something like Twitter, where you have access to untold millions and millions of people. It seems like we have to have a very nuanced perspective on this, and we have to really take into consideration the ripple effect of any decision that gets made in terms of silencing voices, because I think it can all come back and, and, and bite us in the ass. I think it's an amazing ability that we have that's unprecedented to express ourselves and to explore ideas. Unfortunately, Twitter is used by a lot of fucking dummies, <laughs> and a lot of it is just hate and insults, and which is normal. It's standard for the, the internet, right? People dunking on people. It's all normal stuff, but there's also, it's, it's a portal for information, and it's an amazing portal for information, but we got to be real careful about silencing voices just because you disagree with them. But they do have, but I don't think that's... What it is. I don't think Twitter is banning people that they disagree with. I think people, Twitter is banning people who violate their terms of service. It's not necessarily true. We, we talked yesterday on the podcast about Unity 2020. That was a website um, that Brett Weinstein had uh, put together developing a plausible third party candidate. And the, 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 the people that they wanted to use were someone very good from the left and very good from the right. Like they wanted to, the, the concept was Tulsi Gabbard with Dan Crenshaw, like the two of them together, like maybe something along those lines. And Twitter banned that account. They banned the Unity 2020 account. 
because they thought that Trump was so dangerous, they didn't want any sort of potential Ross Perot type situation where some very charismatic third party moves in and takes votes away from the opposition and then Trump gets into office. So they banned it and they banned it under false pretenses. They said that they were using some sort of a, a bot to accelerate the use of hashtags, which is not true. And they did an internal investigation that proved it wasn't true. But there's this sort of subjective censorship uh, that's available to them where they can just decide they can have what do they call it, their trust and safety commission or some shit they can just decide this is we think this is should get and you got a bunch of woke kids that are pushing these buttons and making these decisions and it gets slippery it gets really slippery and i think it there's inconvenient things that you're going to see and there's going to be people that are saying things you disagree with and there's going to be people saying things and arguing things that you think are just outright fucking stupid but i think they have to be able to argue those things i think they have to be able to say those things otherwise we don't have a robust debate based form of communication and if we don't do that then we don't know who's right and who's wrong we just know who gets silenced and a lot of times when people get silenced it actually winds up like making them look like a martyr and it, it, it elevates their point and here's the thing i think we agree on all of that i think the question is when or the real debate is when does yeah. a private business cross the threshold into a utility and right. when should they be regulated uh, that way because I, I think the the I don't I know literally less than nothing about the specific you know uh, example you just uh, you just gave uh, so I can't speak directly to that but I I, I, I know that uh, they need to be able to they are publishing that speech they need to be able to regulate the content to some extent they need to be able to say you know maybe you can't put the blueprints to build a bomb a homemade right. gun or something. Meaning right. there has to be, right. you know, there has Can't to be. dox people. Right. You, ha right. you have, there has to be some, there has to be some rules. They have, they have to have some, you say, you can come here and play, but you got to, you know, the house rules. You say, this yeah. is what they are. So, so then it be, just becomes a question of when should the government, which also talk about a slippery slope, should the government should come in and effectively regulate. Listen, we've already said we don't like the idea of the government regulating that if one, you get banned on one platform, you automatically get banned on all of them. Right. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Right. But that that's not how I want the government to regulate it. So maybe it's just best to say, like, maybe the government should just stay, maybe maybe sit this one out. Let this private. Now, now the debate then becomes, when is it too big? Right. right? When is it too big to where we, you know, uh, you know, to where we have to have some sort of intervention? I don't know. That it's that it's there yet whenever something you know gets so big that the government comes in and starts messing with I mean usually what they're doing is they're they're it's corporate welfare usually they're giving them billions of dollars like a bank when we we're talking about uh, this lack of compassion hmm. I think we also have to have this we have to have more compassion about other people's perspectives and viewpoints because there's there's this real um, especially today the the polarization of this country is so extreme that there is this instant demonization of anybody who holds opposing viewpoints politically, especially. And I think that's very dangerous for us. It's not, it's not healthy, it's not wise, and it doesn't make for good community. Like, you can have a neighbor who's uh, a hardcore right-wing person, and he could be a good friend. You can have a neighbor who's a hardcore socialist, and he could be a good friend. Like, you can have good friends that maybe you don't necessarily share their opinions, but you have uh, a, a, a certain amount of decency and a certain amount of j j just love that you, you approach these people with. 
and we can get along better in this way. This is one of the worst things about social media and Twitter is that we're not communicating in a manner where we're seeing each other. We have face-to-face -face contact. We're reading social cues. So people are just lobbing grenades over fences. Not 280 knowing. characters at yeah. a time. Yeah. yeah. It's not very not very nuanced. It's not. There's no time for real discussion. Yeah. I, 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 I think of how many threads where people, like you said, like it's just like, okay, I'm just going to go back with a Yo Mama joke. You know, <laughs> let's just say if I can end this thing. Right. But then like you see people actually kind of come, if they realize they're talking about the same thing or they come to an under... I always like those threads where you're like, oh shit. Like they kind of, they're like realize that instead of talking past each other they they realize that they have more in common I, I mean those are great I love when yeah. people like agree to disagree or agree to communicate in a, in a, in a pleasant and civil manner it's what those are f those renew my faith and but then it causes it like it also to your point causes us to like over politicize shit that just simply is not political I think about all the time like no like what? nobody's agenda is masks no, there's no big, right. there, may, except for maybe one, right? the Halloween store. Okay, like there's no big mat. There's no mask industrial complex that wants to hmm. force. Ma no one gives a shit. So why, like, whatever? Wear a, a fucking mask. Like, is that a contrarian perspective? Like, no, what I think is that? it's it's whatever the opposite of virtue signaling is. I guess, <laughs> like, hmm. a lack of virtue. I don't know. Like, it's like it's it, it's your thing. It's they're political. Just it. You suddenly politicize things that are simply not. Political. Some things are just for public health. Some things are just people trying to figure out the best way to navigate an unprecedented yeah, once in a generation right. situation and trying to figure by, yeah. by, you know, by science, which is imperfect. You go with the best data you have at the time and things can evolve and things can change. They're trying it's to like, figure it out. Yeah. And, the, and wearing a mask when people ask you to wear a mask. It makes you not be an asshole. Yeah, what's the harm? People. Who gives a shit? Yeah. I, don't I don't know care. if it works. I, listen, for sure, they're not all created equal. That's for sure. Because there's really yeah. tight this, fitting. This is good, not a thing. Yeah. yeah these I mean, fucking I bandanas. <laughs> or my favorite is when people wear a face shield. I'm like, hey, fuck face. What's all this? Yeah. What's all this? You're you're literally just talking. It's going out that like, are you stopping just spit from hitting you? <laughs> Like the face shield one is madness yeah, because there's this fucking gap under there. Although that said, I'd rather the shield at the buffet than not the shield at the buffet. Oh, I know yeah. you're still going under, yeah, yeah, but I'd yeah. rather I'd rather the oh, yeah. I'd rather a shield than no shield. But and I at a buffet. Yeah, and I just but why is it political? Why it's, is uh, that political? Because it seems like the people that are more sensitive to the mask thing tend to be Democrats, and the people the more I'm going to live my life with freedom, they want the mask, dude. The no mask, thing. dude. It gets, dude. How is it that like? How is it that with all the rights, particularly post war on well, war on terror, post nine yeah. eleven, all of the the rights that we've been willing to just give up. Or not aware that we gave up, right? right? Like, Patriot Act. in the interest of national security or, per, you know, yeah. I, I mean, how is the TSA still a thing? How is that still a thing? Yeah. Okay. All the rights and the indignities that we have allowed, this is where we draw. Tyranny is a mask, is a piece of fucking, like, come on. Yeah, come on. It, it doesn't make sense. Choose but your I think battles, it's also man. like people don't like that you wear it and then you sit down, you take it off. They're like, what the fuck are we doing? Like, what are we doing? Like, it's, it, there's non logic to it. Yes. But there's also this this thing that you're doing where you're just letting people know you're not an asshole. And hopefully, <laughs> you know, and then hopefully one day we don't have to do it anymore. But that's what you're doing. You know, when you, when they say you have to wear a mask and then you wear a mask so you sit down, you're just, it's not that hard. At least we're at a restaurant. And that's one thing that I felt like when the pandemic sort of lightened up and you could 
start going to places again. I didn't give a fuck if I had to wear a mask until I sat down at my table or when I went to take a leak, I had to wear a mask to go to the restroom. It's not like, it's okay. It's like, I'm just happy that I could eat at a restaurant. And if they put these right. laws in place, maybe that are a little illogical, I think they're trying to figure it out as yeah. they went along. And if there's a way to reopen schools, which everybody wants, yeah. and the price to pay is your kids wear a mask for, like, if that's what it takes yeah. to get the economy going, to get to get childcare, to get kids yeah. out of the house, to get what what's the what's the big fucking de- and by yeah. the way, sometimes the rules don't make sense. They a lot there's sense. a lot of rules yeah. that don't that don't make sense. But, but we, we do, do get and by the way, God forbid, God forbid, it might actually help somebody or yeah. pr- or or save somebody or someone didn't get who we don't know for sure. But if God forbid that's the worst that can happen. Is that you have an annoying mask on for a few minutes and you don't get somebody else sick? Like, I don't know. It just like that's just some dumb shit to me. Yeah, I don't know if it stops people from getting sick. I've heard arguments in both ways, and I've also seen a video where there was a doctor who was explaining that the reason why he wears a mask is during surgery, and it's to stop things from getting into the wound. And he said, "I'm going to show you what it looks like when you vape, and you blow the vape out of a mask." Have you ever seen this video? Yes, it's crazy like it all goes through and he's like vape particles are so much larger than viral particles he's like it's not really stopping anything it's making you feel better and i'm like okay it's illogical but like until this shit is over it makes sense that people at least want you to wear it or think it's a good idea to wear because it makes it seem like you care like, I don't know. I don't know that it's just virtue signaling. I, think I don't know it is either. Uh, I think it, it's got to filter something out. Yes, it's something. It filters yeah. something out. Yeah, maybe it's uh, enough of a viral load so you'll barely get sick versus get really sick. Like, who the fuck knows? But I, I wish there was a better solution. <laughs> I wish there was something more logical, like fucking advanced HEPA filters that suck all the bad shit out of the air, you know, so you know that if you go into an indoor uh, location, you're in fact safer than you would be anywhere else. That's one of the things that they say that's actually pretty good about airline travel, is that yeah. the filtration right. systems in airline travel are pretty substantial. But I will tell you, I used to get sick almost every time I flew on a fucking plane. I get a cold every yeah. time. I, that's, I honestly might keep up the mask thing. Post-pandemic, uh, knock wood. On when I air travel, I might no. fucking do it. <clears throat> I I'm, a you know, like people think that. Yeah, about, yeah. just for, for in the airport and, and airplanes, because I would get a stupid fucking cold, like, and I'd be down for the count for a couple days every time I get home. My friend Reggie uh, clued us onto these fucking space helmets, these help HEPA filters. They're they're literal helmets. They go over your head and they cinch up at the bottom, so you're completely airtight and you're breathing. It's, it's like they're they're battery powered, right, Jamie? Yeah, they're battery powered. And so there's like a fan in there that keeps it from fogging up and you don't have to worry about shit. <laughs> so Reggie Reggie wore these when he was traveling. It's it's wild though. I mean, you're committing to a look. I mean, you're basically I'm not above a spaceman. That. I'm not above that. Yeah. I, I mean, I would just get a dumb shit cold like yeah. every time I, I would get on an airplane. It was if they let ridiculous. you wear it, they'll let you wear it. I mean, I get it. <laughs> would they not let him wear it? I don't know. Maybe not through TSA. No, no I've never yeah. heard of anybody not being able to wear it, but it is a kind of a crazy contraption. You're wearing a space helmet. <laughs> you know, no. you're, you're like fucking scubaing through the uh, airport. Maybe, I don't know that I could pull that off. Maybe Reggie could just pull that off. Yeah, just, Reggie could pull off anything, yeah, but it is one of those things where I don't think I can wear it. <laughs> yeah. Also, I have a large head. Do you so seem like I have a normal head? 
Like, I have a big head too, though. Yeah, so I don't know, like the if there's like an X, oh, triple XL or it'll fit because <laughs> it fits with Reggie's afro. Like, <laughs> you know, it'll fit you. It's um, I don't know if that's the move either, though. You know, it's just I, I we can only hope that we get out of this with a, a better sense of health, and that at oh, the end, yeah. the other end, people really legitimately choose to take care of themselves better. That's absolutely one of the only things that's going to help you. I'm like, if this if this taught Americans to like wash their hands and be a little less disgusting, and and really with 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 the pre existing, most Americans have pre existing conditions. Yeah. obesity is a major part of that. It's a so, huge factor. Yeah. So if this gets people to say like, you know what, maybe one of the lessons of this pandemic is to get in better shape, is to take care of myself more, to eat better or whatever. I, I eat pretty good during this pandemic. I need to get back in the gym. I'll tell you. <laughs> well, it's hard, right? Because you're looking for comfort. Oh, I ate my feelings. in the house. I ate my feelings. Oh, yeah. I got to be honest. The beginning I enjoyed. I enjoyed the beginning of the pandemic because it just made me closer to my family. I spent more time with them. Just spent a lot of time just hanging out at the house. We watched movies, you know, watched a lot of Netflix. It wasn't that bad, but then after a while, it just started to grate and grind, and turns into The Shining. Yeah, well, you, <laughs> not that bad, but you can see how people have a tendency to just—they realize the world's fucked. So I'm eating lasagna. You know, the world's fucked. I'm going to order a pizza. I had a lot of nights like that. I'll tell you, I did my part for local mm. restaurants in Miami. Again, mm. went on the apps, and you know, actually, a lot of times I tried to avoid the apps and would order direct, so as to not, you know, they don't have to hit that vig. You That's know? good. Yeah, That's good. Like, they yeah. get hit hard, so like I would just order directly from the restaurants and go pick it up, or if they had their own delivery service or whatever, I could do. And and oh yeah, I I, I didn't get COVID nineteen. I might have got the COVID thirty five. <laughs> Did you gain that much? No, not that much. Maybe COVID twenty. COVID twenty five. Are you a regular exerciser? I used to be. Yeah. I used to. What be. changed? Um, time. I didn't make the. T- By the way, not that I had less time, but I didn't make. I'm I'm calling myself out. I didn't make the time. I didn't prioritize it in a way where it's like, okay, yeah, I got to be on set at at seven a.m. or eight a.m., but I'm gonna wake up at five. You know what I mean to get the workout. Mm-hmm. Like you have to do that. I'd rather because I went to sleep late last night. I'd rather sleep in and then go right to set. So yeah, so it was just it's time we became busier. I mean, we're working on f- you know four documentaries at the same time now gone are the days where i can spend 12 years on a doc like we did the kings of miami or or we go one project at a time now listen i, I mean it's a golden era you said it it's a golden age of non-fiction content yeah. and so like we we you know, like docs are are the thing when you think about it i mean listen i, I don't know netflix wants to be talking about their business but you know a, a, a 10 episode season of the crown on netflix costs 100 million dollars it's 10 million dollars an episode Docs cost less, <laughs> meaning, and and if they rate and people watch it and love right. it as much so as some of the scripted and premium big budget shit, then it's a de- it's a bargain for them. It's great for us because we have work. It's a bargain for them because they don't have to pay ten million dollars an hour. Boy, you know, did an episode. the fucking convergence happen perfect for Tiger King, didn't it? Oh, yeah. It was like the lockdown yeah. and then Joe Exotic. Look Just who we got for you. We got some amazing. craziness. It was, it was amazing. Yeah, an incredible convergence, right? And that, and that comes out now. I don't think it becomes that zeitgeist no, kind of a moment. It's just yeah. crazy. It's like a lot of other crazy It's also shit. very good, though. It's crazy. It's very, it's very it's good. Great. I'm not saying it wouldn't succeed on its own merits. I'm saying the confluence of circumstances that you refer to. I mean, like, you know, and Netflix is, so, they're so good. They're so good at what they do. They know so much more about us and our viewing habits oh, than yeah. we even, that we even Their know. Their algorithms are Dude, f- super sophisticated. And they get 
the they get the content in front of the faces of people that they think are going to be into it based on your that's the thing people who share passwords it fucks up the algorithms right because they're recommending you shit your mom would like because she knows she shares your path so you're like what the so someone wrote a very funny um uh, uh, uh tweet they're just like um no netflix now that i've watched cocaine cowboys i don't want to watch grace and frankie it's like, what, what is this, you know, like, how, how did you get that from the, you know, right. but Netflix is so good. I mean, like, they just, you know, they just get, whether it's by email or, you know, when you turn on the service, right? And all of those, you know, not, nobody else is looking at, like, the homepage the that, you're, right, right. that you're seeing. It looks totally, like, and so th- they actually called us with some, they, they, they play their cards very close to the vest. Netflix does not tell you. Yeah, they don't tell you shit when you have a comedy special either. They go, you're doing very, very well. Right. What are the numbers? Code words. You're doing very, very well. Code words. Like, no. So I I was in a meeting with them once, and we were pitching them something. This is years ago. Pardon me. Dude's sitting there. Dude's sitting there with his laptop open. I'm trying to look into with the reflection of his glasses to see if I can see what he... Because he's looking up our shit. Like, what other titles that they had? Like, we're pitching something new. I was like, kind of see how you're... And I I, I got the, you know, kind of like grimace nod, you know, and I was just like, oh, I guess that's... I guess that's good. And so it's funny that they, they don't tell you anything, but they're, but they know, oh, do they know so much? They told us like, which were the most popular thumbnails, interactive, th- meaning like, cause they wow. have, they generate a bunch of in-service art and they tell you which one people interacted with the most. Like, so which artwork they responded to the most and then h- how many finished your start. It's fascinating. And so it's funny. So we, we, um, we did dog fight, um, the backyard fighting doc and we um uh it was a license we you know we worked with a bunch of people like we didn't hear anything it launched a few weeks later we get a call from like big guy over there calling congratulations on the launch and so we ask him we say hey listen how's dogfight doing in so much that you can tell us how <laughs> how dogfight's doing very well overperforming here or there like all, like yeah, code words but not yeah. no numbers no right. you know and he says hey listen um cocaine cowboys espn 30 for 30 the u and dogfight what do those things have in common and i said well miami and the american dream by any means necessary and he said bring us more of that <laughs> And so that's, and we pitched, ultimately pitched Cocaine Cowboys, I the like Kings it. of Miami. So Bring it's like, but again, of that. those are the hints, like, otherwise there's no, yeah. they were so brilliant. What they used to do for a while, I noticed this, I don't know if they still do this, but I noticed this back in like, you know, the early days of like their originals, like Orange is the New Black, House of Cards, you know, I don't think David Fincher knew what kind of numbers House of Cards were getting. I don't think they told, they tell you anything, but here's what they did that was so brilliant. Like, let's say the show, the new season was launching on a Tuesday. On Monday, they would announce that it's already been picked up for a new season. Uh. So one of two, that's two brilliant things. Number one, you've just made a contract with your audience that if you invest 10 hours on this thing, there's going to be more of it next year. So you know what I mean? So, so do it. And then if you're, if you're a cast and crew, what do you care what the numbers are? You just got, all you care about the numbers is that you got, you have a job, right. you got right. picked up for next year. So now they don't even care about the, the job. And of course you can't use the numbers to renegotiate your, <laughs> Right, your contract. Of yeah. yeah, you can't. You're either just like you. And what do you care at that point? You're like, I got a new season. I got a job next year. That's all. That's all you care about is you get picked up, right? That's why the numbers matter. And so, if you've already been picked up, what do you? What do you care? They're so good, and people just watch. You know what happened? So on Cookie, the first Cooking Cowboys, it like it took like three or four years 
for it to become like like a thing I feel like so first 06 it blew up in the bootleg market and here's the thing every window was a different demographic that saw it and got exposed to it like so the first one was like a younger urban audience uh, with the bootlegs then there was legit DVD which was like Amazon Best Buy uh, Netflix red envelope remember the old school days mm-hmm. of the 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 DVDs yeah, you know yeah it blew up there then it went on Showtime then it went on CNBC then it was one of the first docs on Netflix's streaming service when they launched when they first launched the streaming uh, service but every one of those windows opened up like the the show to a totally different demo you know by the time it gets to CNBC that's not young urban you know that's a different very different audience so it's just like it but it took that many years for it to kind of for me basically to get into Ubers and you know someone would say hey where are you from I say Miami they go you ever see cocaine cowboys where like <laughs> you knew like when it comes back when 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 your tweet comes back to you you know when it kind of goes around the world and people are like are sending you your own meme you know you're like oh that's cool um but it took years but like Kings of Miami boom they flick a switch baby it's on 190 countries and 30 different languages and everybody is just seeing it and why so it's like it's all those windows collapsed it's ama- it's incredible it's amazing what it's they a did. pretty stunning network unbelievable yeah and the fact that they have figured out how to not just replace traditional networks but make it far superior and then they figured out how to make you how about i'll give you the whole series in one burst <laughs> Sit down for 20 hours. Watch it all. You're like, what? Yeah. All the episodes? You're the network. You're the programmer. You're the network yeah, executive. And you, you can binge. Nobody binged before. Yeah. They, yeah. they figured it out. Actually, you know what? It's a DVD experience. Yes. I bit, when I first got, I remember what was it? Like one the, of the Wire or the something Wire, like that. The Wire, The Shield. Yeah, I got, I, and, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, and I'd yeah. stay up all fucking night. Right. And I wouldn't even realize it. Yeah. I mean, the sun would be coming up. I'd be all uh, cracked out. I'd be like, did I just sit and watch? fucking 10 episodes of this thing that was like the beginning i feel like of of that and they were a dvd company or you know uh, a distribution company originally you know so like i feel like that's how they were like oh maybe people just what if we just give them the whole fucking season so good so brilliant well i'm glad you got a platform and uh keep bringing more of that More Keep doing it. Whatever you're doing, man. I love it. I'm a giant yeah. fan of your work. And Thank you. I'm, I'm I, happy you're here. I'm, I'm, I may not be a one-hit wonder, but I might be a one-trick cowboy. <laughs> Whatever many, the fuck. It's okay. a great trick, <laughs> one-trick man. One-trick pony. Keep yeah. swinging. Thank you, brother. I really appreciate you Thank very you. much. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Bye, everybody. Yeah.